0: Mountain cold
1: refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
2: Initialize sequence.
3: Welcome to The Baldcast. A
4: production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth.
1: I'll tell you what surprised me about the NFL divisional round of the playoffs. Shocked me, really. It wasn't that we saw the Baltimore Ravens win in John Harbaugh dance, m- giddily in the locker room afterwards. That didn't surprise me. It wasn't that the 49ers looked a little rusty on Saturday. That didn't surprise me. Didn't surprise me either that they still won. And on Sunday, it didn't shock me, didn't surprise me that the Detroit Lions outlasted the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, or even that the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Bills again when it counted. No, no, those things didn't surprise me. Although I thought the Bills would win on Sunday. Didn't shock me. What surprised me that, most of all over the weekend was all the belly aching from fans about the broadcasts. Have we become so entitled that we don't understand that, like, you know, sometimes the broadcasts, particularly in a national setting, are an acquired taste? Jim Nance and to- Tony Romo took the brunt of it on Sunday night as you had uh, Buffalo and Kansas City coming down, really, to the last Buffalo offensive possession And I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say what Jim Nance said. But I did think of Scott Norwood. And now you got to
5: bring out Bass. Sean McDermott, after his one-for-three performance last week, he has tremendous support in the building. If he has to make one for us, the game on the line, he will. 44 yards, Bass. No, he doesn't make it. Wide right. Wow. The two most dreaded words in Buffalo. Have surfaced again.
1: The two most dreaded words in Buffalo. He just should have said, again. I think the headline uh, in the Buffalo newspaper should have just been, not again. As uh, the Buffalo Bills, for as good a season as they had, will look back upon the AFC Divisional Round and another loss to Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs and lament the fact that they didn't get over the hump. We've got the AFC title game set Uh, Of course, it will be the Baltimore Ravens at home against the Kansas City Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes and company going on the road again. Can they do it a second time? And in the NFC, the 49ers trying to figure out what life will look like. Is Debo Samuel going to play? Not a fracture in the shoulder. But uh, will he play? Will he be able to go? Will they be better off trying to beat the Detroit Lions without him and then get him back for the Super Bowl? We'll see what happens in the NFC title game as well this weekend. Uh, I want you to tell me what you were surprised by. What were you most surprised with of the NFL weekend? 503-417-7575. And can you tell me, is the, is the team of Tony Romo and Jim Nance not working for you? Like, I like Jim Nance. I do. I like him on things like golf, especially. And I like Tony Romo. I do. I think he's really good working as an analyst. But he is... Highly controversial, almost as divisive and polarizing as Bill Walton is on broadcasts. And I have an affinity for both of those guys. Maybe I just like the unusual and, and that's my thing. But I like Tony Romo kind of having this conversational moment with you, uh, but I don't particularly think that Nance and Romo work well together. And I don't know. Maybe that's just a me thing. Like I much prefer Bill Walton and Dave Pash because I can feel Pash stepping out of the way of Walton intentionally and sometimes uh, comedically so. and and But I don't feel that with Jim Nance. I feel like Jim Nance wants the stage all the time, and it's really just the, a wrestling match over the microphone. 503-417-7575, what surprised you over the NFL weekend the most? I want to hear from you. Um, I also want to know, from a broadcast standpoint, do you have a favorite crew? I'll still take Nance and Romo. Because I'm getting Romo in that transaction, but I was uh, I was surprised that a lot of the belly aching that I saw on social media was about the broadcast and not about the football itself. S- certainly a, a mistake by Todd Bowles at the end of the Lions game. Got to figure out what in the world he was thinking there. I think the 49ers played about a D plus C minus game and still won. Was really uh, a a strange uh, strange moment to kind of see the Niners. At the end of that Niners Packers game, holding on with two hands and winning the football game and playing ugly. Um, meanwhile, you got Josh Allen and the Bills, like they've got some soul searching to do. And that's what happens when you're a team that, uh, pervert, perennially knocks their head against the ceiling and just can't break through. We're seeing a lot of that. I'll take your phone calls and we'll kick that around. But Steven, I got to ask you, what were you most surprised with over the NFL weekend?
0: Yeah, it was the 49ers performance against the Packers. I, I did not see that one coming. I didn't see the the terrible, I would say a terrible outing by the 49ers. Like you said D plus maybe. Like it was really bad and and it it brings up a concern I think going into this next week on how good the 49ers actually are. We've talked about this. Like are they really an elite team or is the NFC just down? I don't know what it is, and this performance did not help that. Uh, the the thinking that I have with it going into uh, this next week against the Lions and the NFC Championship game, I think the combination of Brock Purdy not being an elite quarterback like he's a he's a good quarterback, a really good player, but he's not great. He's not going to win you games. He's usually just not going to lose you games. You combine that with the uh, the the conservativeness that Kyle Shanahan has. We saw that at the end of the first half when he basically went for a field goal with all three timeouts that got blocked. They didn't get any points out of it. I think you combine those two things and it's like, man, I I don't know how I can pick this team to win a Super Bowl in a big time game when I just can't trust the coaching staff to be, you know, going for it and not be so conservative and lose lose the aggressiveness that they had and then the quarterback not being, you know, the guy. That was the one thing that really surprised me, John. I think that, I thought they had turned a corner this season. The way that the 49ers have played all regular season, but it looked bad against the Packers. Now it may just be the weather, but uh, I don't know. I, I think there's maybe more of a problem than the 49ers want to admit in this one.
1: I think that a lot of what their their offensive clunkiness, you know, I think I can explain that away. I think you can explain it away saying, "Hey, when you don't have Debo Samuel in the lineup, you lose a weapon that the defense absolutely has to account for." And Debo Samuel being on the field makes George Kittle better, makes Brandon Ayuk better, makes Christian McCaffrey better, because you cannot dedicate extra defenders to those other players, and they kill you. And that's how the Niners kill you on the offensive side. I mean, they just have too many weapons. And Purdy is the distributor; he's the point guard. And so, when you remove Debo Samuel, you make it hard. You make life harder for everybody. Christian McCaffrey had a, a what looked like an issue with his thigh and a. Uh, uh, you know, he's getting a massage on the sideline between series. You have weather as a possible thing. But you hit on something that struck me in watching the game. Like coaches that win Super Bowl championships, you can see that there is a comfort and a confidence that they have in the talent that's on the field. And Bill Belichick, whether you liked him or you didn't like him, whatnot, you just, you always felt his confidence and his comfort with his team. And I can feel that right now with the Baltimore Ravens and John Harbaugh, and it's why I think they're going to go to the Super Bowl. I think they're going to beat Kansas City. There's just a confidence and there's a comfort. They believe. uh, Coaching staff looks relaxed. Um, I don't feel that with the 49ers right now. I feel like Kyle Shanahan knows that he hasn't won a Super Bowl, knows that he has been close, and gets in his own head a little bit. And I think, you know, towards the end of the first half, he played not to lose. And you kind of see him playing and coaching almost like a coach who has the team that is, you know, the underdog in the game. And I'm like, you got the better players. You should be maximizing possessions. You should want more plays. And at the end of the first half, here he was kind of playing conservatively.
4: Um, I mean, I like that they didn't score. Um, I like that we won at the end of the day. Um, So, you know, we did go. We did try to score. Uh, We had a chance there right after – on second down, thought we had a chance for B.A. over the middle. would have been a big play that got in it, got us inside the 10 with um, two shots to take it the end zone. Um, we didn't have the time to get it over the mic, and we ended up checking it down, and then we didn't get it. But uh, that's how it works out. I thought we, we make sure they don't get another chance, but it's not like we were just playing for a field goal. Uh, we, we called for a big play. It just – they played pretty deep.
1: Yeah, it was a conservative approach, and I get it. He didn't want to give the Packers another possession – I think the Forty ers were pretty lucky. But d-
0: doesn't that define everything that w- what we're talking about right here? Is he yeah. said, "I didn't want them to get another possession." Well, who should pay? they even think it. Yeah, it it, it, it shouldn't be about them. Yeah. It should be about your own team. Right then, you have the more talented team. You have the great offense, the elite offense. Don't worry about the uh, the Packers with the football. Worry about getting a touchdown. And you're right. You talk about you know a Super Bowl co- coach and Bill Belichick. Think back to their first championship with Brady. They had that drive at the end of the game against the Rams with you know a minute plus left. Down in their own territory, he let Brady throw the ball and get in field goal range. Does Shanahan do that with Brock Purdy? I don't know.
1: I think the 49ers look a little tight. They look a little tense. I was thinking about the pressure on the Buffalo Bills, you know, after Saturday's games went down. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, the Bills and the Niners both had that feel to them where you're kind of rubbernecking over at the other team instead of just focused on what you do well and making the other team play your game. And Buffalo. I thought really lost their advantage when, you know, it, 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 you know, it was a seesaw game. Obviously, there was no punting or whatnot, but really just seemed to look over and it, it felt like late in the game, it was, they were looking over at Patrick Mahomes going, how's that, how's that guy going to beat us? And the Niners were very lucky to run into a team that I think is pretty good, but not great. Packers have good players. I think they're better than advertised, but you could see Jordan Love late in that game. You know, made a younger mistake, a youngish mistake. And the 49ers can't do that. They're supposed to be the best team. They're supposed to be the team to beat in the NFC, and they're going to have a physical game in front of them with the Detroit Lions. But I still think the Niners are the better team. I think they're going to the Super Bowl. I think it'll be the Niners and the Ravens. But Kyle Shanahan cannot get in these big games and then act like he's got the underdog team. It's like, you know, what are you going to do, onside kick to start the game? No, you have the better team. Go out and let your team win the game. Here's Matt LaFleur, Packers coach, after the game. He was heartbroken.
5: You know, I think part of the reason it stinks so bad right now is we fully believed and fully expected to win this game. And give San Francisco credit. They made more plays um, in some of those critical situations down the stretch. Uh, It's a tough football team. Um, But I, I felt like we had plenty of opportunities to kind of put the game out of reach. And unfortunately, just didn't do enough and it's never one play and it's because I know I'm sure a lot of it's going to come down to the, the missed field goal but there were plenty of opportunities you go back in the first half and have three red zone opportunities uh, and have six points um, you know there was just there's a lot of plays out there that it just <laughs> if one play goes different and we'll probably have a different result right now.
1: Even the end of the game, like, you know, the Niners were, you know, and I want to say they're on the ropes, but they were, they were backpedaling late in the game until Jordan Love sort of made that, you know, textbook mistake of a young quarterback in that, you know, he throws back across the middle late in the possession. I want to know what you were surprised by. Who do you have in the Super Bowl? 503 417 I think it's Niners-Ravens. Steven, who is it for you?
0: Yeah, it's Niners-Ravens for me as well. Um, I I think for me, the Ravens, I think I'm going to put it there no matter what. I may change my mind to put the Lions in there by the end of the week. I don't know that yet. But right now, Niners-Ravens, I- I'm with you on this one.
1: I think the Niners have too much offense for the Lions, do you think, even, if, do you think even if Debo doesn't play. Do you think
0: the restiness had to do with that, too, with the yes. 49ers? Because you look yes. at the Ravens, too. They were tied at halftime with the Texans. It was 10-10. They didn't come out sharp either in the first half. Second half, Lamar leads that offense a lot. How much did that affect, do you think, on the 49ers yeah. and the Ravens?
1: I think it's big. I mean, there were several drop passes. George Kittle had an uncharacteristic drop. You know, you lose Debo. Um, I think the Niners defensively played all right, uh, you know, well enough to win, obviously. But I think the offense just was clunky. Mark's in Portland. Mark, what did you see?
3: Well, my, the biggest surprise for me would be San Francisco and, and the over not not happening because I thought I thought San Francisco would uh, would roll over Green Bay to be quite honest. I, they just didn't seem to be quite ready. But I think the biggest surprise of the weekend for me is Stephon Diggs. That. People blaming Josh Allen because we want to always blame the coach or the quarterback that his receivers cost him the game yesterday that pass that sixty yard bomb to Stefan Diggs was one of the most amazing passes I've ever seen in a playoff game, and it was right to him, and he dropped it,
1: yeah um, if, if you're the bills, what do you do like because you know you're next year you're not going to be better, you're just going to be a year yeah, older. You know,
3: it's you don't you don't have a premier receiver now. He caught three passes for twenty one yards, John. Your your go to receiver. You gotta have a guy that you can go to. I don't care if you're Joe Montana who had Jerry Rice or Terry Bradshaw who had Lynn Swan. You gotta have a go to guy. Who is Buffalo's go to receiver? If Stephon Diggs isn't gonna take that part. They don't really have a go to tight end or go to receiver other than Stephon Diggs. So it, it definitely affected what happened. I thought Buffalo was in trouble before the game because they had injuries at the linebacker and yeah. uh, DB position. So Travis Kelsey had, you know, he was, how did he get so open? How do you, how do you lose a guy like Travis Kelsey? It was amazing yeah. to watch. So yeah. Buffalo, I feel sorry for Josh Allen. I just do because he played as well. He looked like John Elway in his prime. To
1: be oh, my gosh. And, and the and fact that you can just run him, him, you can run him like he's a good running back. On a run play is such a weapon to have. I'm looking at the uh, Bills' free agent situation in the off season. Micah Hyde is a uh, unrestricted free agent, so you got a free safety you need to resign. Um, you know he's making, uh, you know unrestricted. He's making nine point six million. Um, you know there's not a lot there. They they essentially could run this same team back. Um, obviously, they need a receiver. I think they need to uh they need to uh you know, not only think about what they can do to get better, but they have to think about what they can do to combat the Ravens and the Chiefs and the other teams in the AFC that you see coming on. Uh let's go to Jim in Vancouver. Jim, welcome.
2: Howdy, my
1: announcers that I like are, are Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, and I especially like Joe Buck, because he's pretty good at whatever sport he's doing, baseball, football, whatever. And I agree with both you and Steven. Uh, I think that the Super Bowl will be the 49ers and and Baltimore. Um, I I don't know who will win. Uh, Baltimore should, but
6: I I guess it just depends on which team shows up.
1: Yeah. Uh, Look, I think uh, Steven, I'm going to set a line. I have not seen an early Super Bowl line but I believe that the Ravens will be favored by about three to three-and-a-half points in that Super Bowl if they play the Niners.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems about right. Maybe a little. I'd maybe say less than three. Less than three, two-and-a-half? You think two-and-a-half? I think two-and-a-half. I, I don't know if you can give a full field goal to the 49ers. Cause I don't know.
1: They beat them pretty good in their first meeting on Christmas. That
0: is true. I mean, that was a really eye-opening experience on the Christmas Day game. Uh, but I just think you you look at the 49ers roster, if Debo's healthy, like I, I think it would be a different type of game. Uh, going to the Super Bowl, but yeah, I think right around three would be a perfect number.
1: I think we are going to see how that unfolds, but, but I, I think three is the number, and I think it is I think it is Niners, and I think it is Ravens, and I think part of it is Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. You know, it's one thing to say, can you, can you win another game? Can you appear at a six straight AFC Championship game? And credit to the Chiefs organization, remarkable thing. I'm not counting them out because they have Patrick Mahomes. But that Ravens' defense might just be the right defense to, to to put in there, and that's why I think they'll they'll beat the Chiefs. Well, now, the, I do think the Niners are going to beat the Lions, and I don't think, to me, the Lions have the feel of the team that's going, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're playing with house money. We've gotten to the point where we're at. Dan Campbell's done a great job. But that Lions team, I think they'll run the ball. I think they'll score in the 20s. I think the Niners will have too much offense for them.
0: Yeah, we... We, I said this last week. I said I hate betting against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid because they're awesome. Like, I why know. do I want – and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to bet on the Ravens because I just – like, I, the Chiefs played a great game. It was by far their best game of the season, and they still should have lost to the Bills on uh, last night. Like, the Bills should have yeah. won that game, as the caller said. Stephon Diggs dropping, dropping footballs. I thought it was weird that, you know, guys like Stephon Diggs, CeeDee Lamb, they're always out there talking. You know, they're the best receiver. They need more touches and then in the biggest moments they they shrink. And this happens have, has happened to a lot of players in a lot of sports. But Stephon Diggs is one of those guys, and then he shrunk in the moment. CeeDee Lamb, same thing in their playoff game as the Packers, shrunk in that moment until they got down 21-0. Then he started catching passes. Those guys for the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey, he's been struggling all postseason, all half the last half of the season. He has the biggest game of the season. Two touchdowns. You look like at Rasheed Rice, he has stepped up the last few games. Like it's just the mentality of these teams. I think for me, John, the quick thing to do to change up the bills is to get rid of McDermott and try to go get Bill Belichick. Like I mm. think that's the move. Wow. That's the move you have to make, to make. You think it's a
1: coaching move?
0: I think it's a coaching move, and then I think – I, I you know I think the players are fine. Like Stephon Diggs is not the man, and that's 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 right. You can go try to get another receiver.
1: You gotta but, pay. You're gonna have to pay Kyle yeah, Allen. He'll he'll you know it.
0: But, but yeah, Josh Allen's not the problem. Like yeah, I don't. Josh Allen, sorry. No, no, yeah. Josh Allen's not the problem. I think it's it's a coaching problem. It's a McDermott problem. You go out and you get Belichick. It's just gonna be different, a whole different scenario in that building. He is a championship level coach. Like I think that's the difference. I think that's the quick move that I would try to make if I'm the Buffalo Bills.
1: Here comes the offseason move, because I think if you're Josh Allen, too, there's another there's – uh, there's a move that we've seen Tom Brady and some others make over the years is that, you know, Buffalo's supposed to be over the cap. They could restructure Allen's contract. I think that happens. Um, Stephon Diggs, um, you know, Vaughn Miller, do you bring both of those guys back, or do you go – like, Stephon Diggs, you know, he had 107 catches, but he had eight games. Eight of the final 11 games, including the playoffs, where he was under 55 yards receiving. You can't have that from your number one guy. And I agree with Mark in Portland. Like I think you might have to either dedicate some free agent dollars or dedicate two of your top four draft picks to trying to find a receiver or two that can give Josh Allen some help because, you know, you're – you're um, you're hitting on something where you know I think franchises have only two moves that they can make when they get in the position like the Buffalo Bills. It's either the roster or it's the coach, and if you want to blow up the roster in your Buffalo, uh, you know because I just don't know when I'm looking at this roster like we're tinkering. We're saying hey, they need a better receiver. I like their tight ends. I like the fact that they ran the football well. I like their offensive line. Uh, I like their defense. I just, I, it's tinkering with the offense, but you might be right. Maybe the move is to blow the coach up and find a guy who can get you over the top. All right, John Strong, Fox, soccer, MLS. You know him from the World Cup. You know him from this radio show. He'll be joining us next. We're going to talk about broadcasting. Everybody all over Jim Nance and Tony Romo. Bill Walton takes his fair share of criticism. What makes a good broadcaster? Settle in and listen to one of the best around. Talk about it coming up next. Oregon got swept in men's basketball last week. I guess the Colorado-Utah trip was not kind to Dana Altman and the Ducks. Wayne Tinkle in Oregon State uh, also fell last week. It was a bad week for men's college basketball in our state. Um, uh, Obviously, Oregon State's got a different mindset as it will head to the WCC next season. Uh, I think Oregon State will have a decision to make about Wayne Tinkle's future, of course. They'll be on the hook for about $9 bucks, and that may be enough for Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, to, uh, to give Tinkle another year. Uh, meanwhile, Dana Altman probably will coach as long as he wants to, but I do talk to a lot of Pac-12 coaches, and they say, gosh, I'm surprised Dana's still coaching, given all the NIL transfer portal stuff. I think Dana Altman's decision will come down to how Oregon finishes the season. How do they look? Big, big game next Saturday at home against Arizona at Matthew Knight Arena on Saturday. That is a big one for the Ducks. In Folly, Dante, Oregon, Jackson, Shellstad, they're going to have to be on their game to beat Arizona at home. Uh, That's going to be a big one. Uh, John Strong, formerly of this radio show, you can catch him on Fox calling soccer the World Cup. He is, uh, you know, big time now. He's, you know, the voice of American soccer. But I want to bring John Strong on, not to uh, discern, you know, if the belly aching about broadcasters is good or bad, but maybe just to give us some insight for the rest of us who have not called play-by-play on a major national event of how tricky that is. What goes into a good broadcast crew? The chemistry. Um, I happen to really like Tony Romo. I really like what Romo brings to the broadcast. I feel like he's in the living room with me. Some people hate him. I happen to like Bill Walton. Other people hate him. I, I like Jim Nance, but I don't like Jim Nance with Tony Romo. I think Jim Nance is be- much better when he's on golf or he's on something by himself. I don't, I don't really understand why. I just know what I like. But John Strong is going to help us understand what it is to be a broadcaster in that situation. He's called the World Cup, he's been on the big stage, and now he's joining us. Strong, how you doing, man?
7: I'm just happy we got these darn kids back in school today after Thank last you. week's nonsense, so everything awesome. else is gravy.
1: Let's hear about that. I told Anna yesterday I said, you know, we might get some freezing rain overnight and her eyes got really big. I said, "I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, that was me of you." That was that was poor form. It was poor for him. Help us understand. Just talk from a 20,000-foot view about broadcasting. And, you know, you've been part of crews that, you know, you had great synergy, and others maybe you had to work harder at it. What goes into a good broadcast team? I
7: mean, part of it is what you said at the end there. I can't really explain it, but I know I like it or I know I don't like it. This is such a subjective thing. And, you know, it is. It's like music. It's like movies. You could put 100 people in a room, and you could get 100 different oftentimes very passionate opinions about Jim Nance or Tony Romo or Joe Buck. Think about the amount of negativity he's received over the years from people or any, any announcer, particularly when you get to this very top, top, top level that these guys are at on, on a lead NFL network telecast. And you're getting, you know, for a playoff game, I mean, I'm, I'm expecting them to get well more than 40 million uh, for that game yesterday on CBS. And it's hard to, really pin this down sometimes. The, the other issue has been not just social media, but you have this cottage industry that's developed over the last five ten years of sports media critics, websites like Awful Announcing that just sort of amplified this conversation. And, you know, I, what I don't want to do and what I don't like to do is sort of sit here and go, well, unless any of you people have worked in the business, you don't know what you're talking about because that's the same logic that unless you've played in the NFL, you're not able to talk about the NFL. I I hate that sort of logic. I think that's garbage. So everyone has a right to that opinion. I think part of it is understanding off the front there is no objective right way to do it. There's no objective wrong way to do it. There's a variety of different styles, and I think certainly when you have – and this is you know when you and I were texting about this today, I think Tony Rome was a great example, along with a Bill Walton – along with the Dick Vitale, along with the John Madden at one point, where when you are doing things in a different way and when you do have a different personality and you are your very authentic self in a way that Tony Romo is, that's going to really be jarring to people in, in an art form, in a medium that has oftentimes, I think, sort of regressed towards the mean. You know, it's the easy – and, I, and I can, I've fallen in all these different traps. But one of the traps I've fallen in is you're trying to be so safe that you end up just being very bland. And that's that's not what Tony Romo is. And so, you know, I, I roll my eyes at a lot of the criticism and a lot of people's opinions of it, but by the same token, it's also like, you know, we are never more emotional uh, as Americans outside of maybe politics as when we're watching a big-time NFL game. We're just in an emotionally raw state, and so anything that person says or doesn't say is going to elicit a big response.
1: Let me ask you, because you've, been paired with different people over the years how long does it take to get synergy or you know maybe if you don't have natural chemistry with another broadcaster you know can you fake it and you know what goes into that
7: i mean you can definitely fake it there are great examples of very well-known high-profile booth partnerships that either just don't really get along much, don't really hang out. There's plenty of examples of, of dudes that just despise each other. Like, it's funny how many baseball <laughs> in particular, local baseball, for some reason, has had wonderful uh, examples over the years of guys that just can't stand each other, but they kind of fake it when they're on the air. Honestly, the, the best and worst comparison is it's like a marriage. A lot of marriages look great on the surface and are terrible, Uh, down at the roots. A lot of marriages are really strong and healthy, and even sometimes you can butt heads, but you still love each other. And, you know, I'm very, very blessed to have a partner in Stu Holden that our wives joke about how it is kind of like a marriage, the two of us, and how tight we are, how close we are, how often we talk, and our ability to read each other's subtleties in tone or in body language, Um, or sometimes our ability to kind of really annoy the other one for a brief amount of time, but then recover out of it. Yeah. It's hard because you can. Maybe it takes time, but sometimes it's just personality matching. And I I do think it's one of the things that's really interesting about the four network lead NFL crews because you have on the one end of the spectrum uh, a Joe Buck and a Troy Aikman. These dudes have been at it for a quarter century, and and they are I think the prime example of just kind of like Stu and I. They are so in sync. They are so together. It is. It's a really wonderful synergy between the two of them. Then you have at Fox at my network, Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson, both somewhat new. Kevin Burkhardt hadn't done a ton of NFL. Uh, Greg Olson, obviously, just off the playing field, and they were kind of thrown into one of the, uh, you know thrown into this together. And then you have at CBS and at NBC examples of where, you know, Jim Nance and Phil Simms had a really long partnership, but then all of a sudden it's like, hey. You don't just have a new partner, you've got a very different partner in Tony Romo. And the same was kind of true with Al Michaels and, and Mike Tirico, either side of Chris Collinsworth. It can take a lot of time, and, you know, it's, this is where the subjectivity comes into play. Because I can hear things in all of those guys, I can hear things Tony Romo does, that I can tell he's been told by a producer or network, network executive, oh, I loved when you did that. And yeah. so he sort of goes back to that well a lot. It's a really nerdy inside thing. But I think all of us, kind of like players, you know, you, you, if you find something that works, you're going to keep doing it over and over, and you're going to lean back on that in those big moments where you know every word is being parsed, and there's millions of people watching, and you really, really, not just you don't want to screw up, but you really want to match the moment, uh, and that's hard to do.
1: Yeah, I like when Romo, right before the snap, will go, they're bringing these, those two guys in the middle, He's going to have the deep middle open and the quarterback throws the ball into the deep middle and he doesn't go I told you so we all just know it like he called it and he's the quarterback in that situation but you hit on something else there how much help are these guys getting how much coaching are they getting who's in their ear help us with that
7: it it's difficult for me to say only because the NFL is a different beast from a broadcasting standpoint even from what I've done it and, and what my experience, even at the World Cup final, and, and it's a really nerdy explanation as to why, couldn't be more different. What I would say is, my observation and impressive uh, impressions is these guys are actually getting a lot less coaching than you might think. Um, particularly at that level, there's sometimes a hesitancy, and, and I'm quoting interviews that some of the top network guys have given over the years where they kind of say, like, I wish I got more coaching and feedback, particularly ex-players who are used to, in the NFL's case, on a Monday morning, like it's kind of laid bare on the tape. Either you made the throw or you didn't, and either you won or you lost, and there's no ambiguity there. And it is is tough sometimes to get, you know, it's like uh, movie stars or something like that, where you want, oh, you were great, you were fantastic, like don't upset the star. And so I would say more often than not, as much as a lot of these broadcasts, you'll have long production meetings, you'll talk throughout the week, you, you really want to be buttoned up on certain moments of where you're going and what you're doing, there's also sometimes less feedback and coaching in this than people might expect. And you sometimes, and I can speak from my experience, you kind of have to press a little bit and rattle cages a little bit to be like, okay, what didn't you like? What are you concerned about? What can I do better? Because there is... And understand, there's a lot of market research. There's audience surveys. We were part of that. Our soccer group a couple years ago was like our year. And they presented us with, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, it was kind of like a likability rating with a lot of audience research. So there's definitely that part of it. But there's also sometimes just the subjectivity of a certain boss and a certain hiring executive being like, I really like that person's voice. I really don't like that person's voice. So um, yeah, it's, it's a funny business sometimes in actually why things happen in certain ways. And you don't want to necessarily say, oh, these guys are winging it because they've got people in the booth. They've got producers. They've got the best of their best around them. But more than you might think sometimes, it is kind of a, hey, you know, we don't want to get in this guy's head. We don't want to get in his way. We kind of want to let Tony Romo or Bill Walton or Dick Vitale just kind of be who they are.
1: John Strong with us. He is the lead play-by-play voice for soccer on Fox. Uh, strong, um, there was a point of the broadcast with the Chiefs and the Bills where Romo says, uh, you know, I want to look at this. Stop it right there. Whoever was in the truck did not stop it because they knew there was an extra point to be kicked, and they just kind of blew through the stop sign. And it was kind of a funny moment where you could just see, like, you know, we'd love to let you do this here, but we're, we don't have time for this, Tony. And they kind of moved on. Um, you know... Give me an example to you know for yourself when you're calling a game and you know you feel yourself playing it safe. Do you have to kind of course correct in the middle of a game and go like, are you aware? Hey, I'm not having my one of my better broadcasts. Can you regroup like a like a team regroups at halftime?
7: The best, yes, can, and I can absolutely think of examples of where either physically or mentally I'm like, oh boy, like I don't have my fastball today. What do I do? You know, I again trying to condense the story i got really 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 sick at the tail end of the men's world cup in qatar a little over a year ago and i was limping through some of those games in the quarterfinal and the semifinal rounds and i hit it well even from my wife but i was definitely early on like okay i don't have my best stuff today so i kind of have to make that work other times i can think of situations where again it's like a player and we always say to players, you got to have a short memory, you got to forget that one, don't let one mistake turn into two. I can think of games that I've called, one in particular, where I made a mistake, I blew it, and I dwelled on it, and I got in my own head, and I was really poor the rest of the game as compared to, in more recent years, you try to eliminate the first mistake in the first place, but you, you are getting better, ideally, with experience and comfort at being able to forget it and move on and you know the the dynamic of what you've talked about there with the truck it's you know the nfl is a different rhythm than other sports because it is a very regimented rhythm as i learned a couple times when i did two college football games in 2019 of you have the play and then you have the replay and then maybe something pre-snap and then play and then replay and you kind of get in that mode um, but it can move pretty quick, and it can be hard sometimes to nail down exactly what you want to do in the moment. That's why sometimes you'll see they'll come back from a commercial break. Hey, look at this better replay angle we now have on this stuff. I mean, we operate in a world in soccer where it's a world feed. We don't control the pictures. We don't know what replay is coming, so we're reacting to everything. We have no way like we would if it was a Fox-controlled game like the NFL guys have where you could, and it's something that a Chris Collinsworth is, is a master at. As the play is happening, he's calling for a specific replay angle, and they cue that up, which is incredible, the dance that they do, so that Collinsworth knows exactly what's coming because he's, he's requested it, and he can make that point. That's really, really high-level stuff that the best in the business are, are really remarkable at.
1: What do you like? I'm curious, as a, you know, as a listener or viewer, I, I like Walton. I like Romo. Sometimes, um, you know, passion Walton work for me because Pash gets out of his way. But what do you like? What's pleasant to you as a broadcaster when you're watching an NFL game or an NBA game or whatever?
7: You know, it's it's tough because this was easier to say when when these guys were at my network. I really do like Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. I like their synergy. I like how they can bust each other's chops in <laughs> moments. I like how in sync they are in big moments. I love how Joe Buck calls a game. I've actually learned a lot from him Well, I've only once very briefly met him, had interaction with him. But, you know, a couple years ago when he came out with his book and he was very honest about the insecurities that he faced and the challenges and different things and how he learned it evolved as a person in addition to a broadcaster, I learned a ton from that. So I really respect him a lot as a person from what I've heard from him. And he just has one of the one of the fundamental concepts that we hear a lot of at Fox and I'm sure as other networks is can you make the game can you make the moment feel big and it's like well, what does that even mean how do you define that let alone how do you do that and no one really has an answer but like you said at the beginning you know when you hear it and that's something I focus on really intensely and it's something I think that Joe Buck is excellent at but historically I would say my favorite's Keith Jackson, Al Michaels, Dick Enberg. I, I, I listen a lot to old Pat Summerall stuff, try to learn from him. But kind of like you said with Romo, I think the best to do it, do it in such a way that it's like you're, you're bellying up to the bar and you're sitting on bar stools and the two announcers are sitting right next to you. And they're just kind of chatting with you during the game. It, you're just not saying anything. And that familiarity, that conversational tone That's kind of the the magic, that if if you can find a way to nail it, I I think is a really special, fun thing. And like I said, that's something that, that Stu and I focus a ton on. How can we make the moment feel big? How can we feel like we're sitting on the living room couch? But how can we not, in doing those things, get in the way of why people have tuned in, which is not to listen to us, it's to watch the game?
1: You now, your Denver Broncos are not part of these playoffs anymore. And, hey, I
7: was, I was not told know. this was going to be part of it. I did not agree to discuss the Broncos on this, <laughs> all right?
1: I want to know, who's your quarterback next season? Who, who do you ride or die with?
7: Uh, Probably not the dude that was in the last two games, bless his
1: heart. <laughs> yeah. um,
7: here's the thing. Here's my honest deal. Um, right. I would love, love, love to see Bo Nix in there. I actually think Bo Ooh. Nix could be good. Because I think it's kind of that Brock Purdy-esque, yeah. have a guy back there that can make good decisions, distribute the ball, because they do have some pieces. I would also love Michael Penix, just because I'm a huge fan yeah. of his. So, you know, what I have always wanted from a Denver Broncos standpoint is I, I would lo- love to have either a Duck or someone I'm familiar with from the Pac-12 rest in yeah. peace. So those, those are two dudes. But listen, it's not going to be Russ, but if it is Russ, hey, let's, let's do it and let's find a way.
1: I just don't know if that's tenable anymore. After all that's been done and said, like you know, it's like kind of like that ship has sailed and and it's it's disappeared in the horizon. So I, I'll I like your question. Yeah.
7: It, it's it's not tenable. It's done. All the right. whole th- yeah. the, the whole pretense of well we'll see. I think was a ruse, but it's yeah. a bummer because you know we had high hopes and I, Russell Wilson. I one time shared a booth with him he came on with us for it oh, couldn't well. have been nicer or more pleasant so I, I wanted to see him succeed because i think he's a good dude yeah. it's, it's a bummer it didn't work
1: he did succeed he's rich beyond his wildest dreams <laughs> he's got 14 bathrooms stop feeling sorry for him hey right. but
7: i see the, the way that these these men and women at that level are wired all the money yeah. in the world's great they're winners they want to win it's not about the paycheck as much as we might think that
1: John Strong you're a winner. All right. I got to go to commercial break, but thank you for sharing your expertise. You made all of us smarter today.
7: And hopefully didn't get in
1: trouble. See you, bud. All right. <laughs> there he goes. John Strong on Fox. You think the Fox bosses would be mad at anything he said, Stephen? I don't think so. No, I, I think, think he's,
0: he, I think he's on he's on track there.
1: I think he towed the line. But you know, but I told him. I said, "I don't want to know like, you know, who you think sucks or whatever, but talk to us about the business. Help us understand what's going on." And What's happening in Tony Romo's ear, and I think part of the problem with Romo and Nance is that there's ego. And Nance is a center stage guy, and Romo's a center stage guy, and you can't have Abbott and Abbott. It has to be Abbott and Costello. Laurel and Hardy. You can't have Laurel and Laurel. It doesn't work. And so I think that's the bigger problem with that pairing. And I think it's why Bill Walton and Dave Pash work. Pash gets out of the way. Nance is not getting out of the way. It's not in his nature. It's not what he's supposed to do. Our big splash is coming up. I have several objectives with this radio show. I have for 17 years or however long we've done it. One of them is, you know, I, I, I want to make you smile. I want to make you laugh. I want to I entertain you. I want to inform you. Uh, I want to take you places you can't go otherwise. Um, you can go places on this show that no other radio show will take you. I want that for you. Uh, and I want to make you smarter. I want to go inside baseball. I want to tell you how the sausage is made. And I love that interview with John Strong, voice of American soccer, Fox lead soccer broadcaster, uh, got his start on this radio show in the very seat that Stephen Vaughn is sitting in. So, Stephen, one day we will have you on the show. You'll tell us all about um, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck.
0: Yeah, no uh, no expectations for me at all. So yeah.
1: That's how it goes. Yeah. Uh, what would you think of what he said? And, and, by the way, where do you stand on Romo and Nance?
0: You know, I don't. I don't have a problem with Bro and Nance. I think. um I think. It... Here's my take on a lot of announcers, though, John. I don't have a problem with really any of them, and I think the reason I don't is because I don't have like a favorite team that I feel like they're out against. <laughs> so, like, I I don't know that there's ever really been a broadcast where I'm watching a sporting event and I'm like, you know what, these broadcasters are really ruining this sporting event for me. Like, I, there's never been that situation. So for me, like. I like I like announcers when they, as John Strong said, that how they lay out, and they let the moment feel bigger than it actually is, and yeah. that's by when the crowd is going insane, and I like to hear the crowd noise, and then them adding just a little bit. I thought Nance called the missed field goal by Tyler Bass was really good. And then the fact that he threw out wide right again, you know, that's the worst words or never a Buffalo Bills fans can hear. Like, I, I love that kind of stuff, just off the cuff. I don't like you know the prepackaged stuff that I feel like people have thought about for weeks and weeks. They're like, I need to say this line, it's gonna be really good. I want it to be natural, I want it to be talkative talkative, but I'll be, like I'll be honest, I don't really have a problem with any announcers that I can think of. In the NFL Now there's more There's something I like More than others uh, With Nance and Romo I definitely don't have A problem with them I think Romo's Over the top sometimes But I think he also Just gets really excited Because he loves To watch football And that's yeah. just Kind of how fans I are I don't mind so. that And so yeah. I like that I like that part about him
1: The the kind of analyst I don't like Is the analyst Who sits back And doesn't say anything And just tells us The the broadcasters Who repeat what they see On the screen I can already see it Tell me something I can't see Take me somewhere I can't go Just like I want to Take people in this radio show That, of course, brings us to our Big Splash. It's confusing to me, but it's splashy.
3: This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash! Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about.
1: Oh, I'm excited about Killer Burger. Uh, Nick Dunlap, University of Alabama sophomore, on Sunday became the first amateur to win on the PGA Tour in more than three decades. Life changing 24 hours. He had to forfeit though the 1.5 million dollar winner's purse and the 500 FedEx Cup points that came along with his win. He's only 20. Now, he's got to decide whether he goes back to Alabama for the remainder of his second college season or if he joins the PGA Tour as a full-time member. Here's my question. I got my hand up here for golf and the NIL people and the NCAA. How can a college quarterback like Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, Caleb Williams, how can a college player get a million-dollar seven-figure endorsement deal, an NIL deal, but a golfer? Can't collect the $1.5 million winner's purse? I get it. It makes him a pro, but where's the line here? Why does Dunlap have to forfeit the prize to keep his eligibility, but a college quarterback can take the money and keep his eligibility? Makes no sense to me. K.L. Wombacher's coming up. Hillsboro Hops general manager. Be here for it. I like baseball. I think a lot of you like baseball. And I've enjoyed over the years going to Hillsborough Hops games. And really liked that the Hillsborough Hops got a classification raise, so to speak. And really got excited when I heard about the news. Where the city of Hillsboro, the county, the state, all getting involved in building a new facility in Hillsboro That would house the minor league team. Cost of this thing... 80 million, 100 million, 125 million. Of course, the longer you wait to break ground on construction, the more it costs. It's been a lot of smoke out there regarding the future of baseball. Major League Baseball's enhanced requirements for minor league facilities. What does it mean? What's going on in Hillsboro? You know, I finally just said, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's get K.L. Wambacher, the general manager of the Hillsborough Hops, on the show. We'll get an update on what is going on with the new build. How close are they to actually making this happen? What do they need to happen? And what happens if the facility improvement doesn't get done? Does that mean no more professional baseball in the Portland metropolitan area? K.L. Wambacher is the general manager of the Hillsborough Hops, and uh, he's joining us now. Did I set the stage all right with that? Was that a uh, a good synopsis of what is going on?
4: That that was almost. Hey, John, how you doing? That that was almost like I wrote the script for you. That, that thank was, you. That was well well teed up.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Um, can you, we start? You obviously with, yeah. know
4: a lot about baseball, so it's good to talk to you about this.
1: It's it's always good to talk to you, and I'm interested in this because I think you know there's a risk here that baseball, if this doesn't happen in the right way, doesn't end up being a thing in the Portland metropolitan area. But give us an idea. Let's start with Major League Baseball. What happened in the last few years and how have the standards for ballparks and facilities changed?
4: Yeah, the biggest the biggest thing is in 2020, uh, Major League Baseball basically took over the minor leagues. So they, in the past, they would have an eight year agreement with the minor with minor league baseball and player development, and the minor leagues didn't do a very good job of keeping facilities up, um, keeping player standards up. Um, I mean, there are a lot of facilities that haven't been touched for 20 years. The facility standards, minor league. Baseball hadn't changed them since 1990. Um, And so Major League Baseball finally said, you know what, enough's enough. We've got to modernize this game. Um, We're spending – teams are spending a lot of money on these players, and we need quality experiences and quality training facilities for them. So they went to the 160 teams that were part of Minor League Baseball, picked the top 120, and issued – player development licenses um, or professional development league licenses to those 120 teams. We were fortunate to be in the 120. Uh, we went from being a short season, a club to being in the high a level. That was the license that we were offered by major league baseball. Um, and each 120 market, you had a choice. You could either sign this new 10 year contract with major league baseball and, and be a part of this new system or, you're, you're, you're done. Like you, you basically vanish or you, you know, try to find an independent league to join or something like that, but you would no longer be a a major league affiliate organization in our league. We had two teams that did not make the cut Salem and Boise. So we kind of knew in the Northwest league, if we didn't take this deal, Salem probably would, or Boise would. So there was a lot more pressure on us to, to make sure we took the deal. We consulted with the city. The city said, we do not want to lose professional baseball. Uh, I'm sure we can figure this out, whether it's a renovation. Um, we thought we could renovate at the time. So uh, we all signed that contract in 2020, and and now we're obligated to meet, to meet that contract, which the biggest part of it was enhancement for uh, facilities for player development.
1: All right. So are we talking about locker rooms, batting cages, training rooms, uh, meeting rooms? You know, when they say facility enhancement, you know, you guys obviously have pivoted from – a renovation to a new build. Um, you know, give me an idea of what the blueprint for that new build includes. When, you know, when you start talking about this project,
4: yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's all based around player health and wellness. So it's the training facilities, it's the experience of the players, the quality of the facilities. You know, a lot of it has to do with um, gender equity. Like we didn't have females in the game, which is kind of crazy to say now that we've had female umpires, female trainers, and a female mm-hmm. manager last year. Um, but these facilities were never designed to have female locker rooms. It's, it's kind of sad. And so modernizing that aspect of our game to where now coaches' offices and, and umpire facilities and visiting team facilities, coaches' facilities, they have male-female formatting and uh, male-female uh, opportunities, uh, player dining spaces because they're here all the time, and, and teams now provide two meals a day to these players to try to enhance their nutrition. We didn't have the infrastructure for that. Um, Batting cages, our batting cages never really did meet standard. They're just not tall enough. And so we've got to expand those. We've never had a weight room. So building a new weight room on site. Um, And then the biggest thing for us, which is why we had to pivot from a renovation to a new stadium is we never had a visiting clubhouse. It was value engineered out when the stadium was built. And major, minor league baseball let us use the football stadium next door. So the visiting team over the last 10 years, 11 years, has been using basically high school locker rooms um, over in the football stadium. And major league baseball came in and was like, yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even connected to the facility. So this, this, the square footage we need to add with the visiting, all the new visiting spaces, the new weight room, the female spaces, the dining areas, the new batting cages, it just wouldn't fit into the footprint we have here and we have this transmission water line up through the parking lot 66 inch tr- transmission water line that we had to relocate and so the renovation just got to be so cost prohibitive that um we decided that the new ballpark would be way better in the long run um, it gives us a better footprint and then it also gives the city the ability to use ron talking field year round for community use
1: kale wambacher with us general manager hillsboro hops the the cost of construction obviously when you you first look at this it's going to be one number and then we have just seen construction costs skyrocket how has that impacted this project
4: yeah our timing is not great on this uh between the increase in construction costs and then the interest rate escalation too it's it's two factors that have really worked against us Um, we 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 started this project by trying to determine the maximum amount of private investment investment we could put into it, and and we were hopeful that we could build this ballpark ourselves. So we found out um, we could we could finance about eighty million dollars. The owners came up with a couple million dollars cash too. So so we basically started with eighty two million dollars. Um, in twenty nineteen we you could build a stadium for eighty two million dollars. You could build a really nice stadium for eighty two million. We felt pretty good. Well, then we went into design and started getting construction costs and realized, no, if it's more like 100 to 120. So that's where uh, we went to the city and we talked to them about their lodging tax and if there could be an investment of lodging tax dollars that would go into this. And they determined about 18 million uh, could be freed up. So that got us to 100 million. And then uh, we went to the state last session, the full session, and asked for a $25 million grant that we thought might be cut a little bit, so we wanted to ask for a little bit more, um, and maybe we'd get 15 or $20 million, and that would finish the funding plan off. Uh, we had great feedback throughout session. We spent six months trying to lobby for this. We had professional lobbyists that we had hired and a lot of meetings with legislators. So everyone was like, we, we support the hops. We want to see the hops continue and everything, so we felt really good, and then obviously the revenue forecast kept getting bigger and bigger for the state. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, in June, we got uh, we uh, were not able to be successful in getting any money from the state. So that was kind of a major setback in June. Um, it allowed us to kind of take a step back and, you know, go have some conversations with Washington County to see if there's any potential with lodging tax there. Uh, go back to the city and, and see if there's any potential there, and then kind of reformat a one one. Once and final ask to the state to see if we can get an investment, and, and this time we're we're looking for 15 million, and that would complete the funding plan for for the ballpark.
1: Yeah, you know, I know I can hear our listeners saying, "Hey, there are bigger problems in sports. There's homelessness. There's drug addiction. Um, there, you know, schools. Uh, there, you know, everybody is is uh, you know, we, we wish that the state had an endless uh, pot of money." that could be allocated to solve all the problems but I, I keep looking at this kale and i keep thinking okay a big construction project would bring tax revenue um, the operations uh... players and staff at the stadium there's tax revenue in that at some point i do think there becomes a win-win where the state goes okay we need to create jobs we need to create a project we obviously need to fund uh... you know homelessness uh... initiatives and fight against drug addiction and help our schools but these things feel like there's there they could be there could be some synergy between them. Um do, are you optimistic at this point that 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 this is going to happen and that you know uh, that you'll find a way?
4: Yeah, I mean, um optimistic I, I'm I'm internally optimistic. So, maybe that's a good quality, maybe it's a bad quality of mine, but um your listeners are absolutely right. There are more important issues than sports. And I think our argument, especially to state legislators, is this doesn't need to be an or. Why can't it be an and? Why can't we find resources to help with homelessness and drug addiction and housing and schools? And why can't we find some money to help fund quality of life and um, entertainment and things for us to do in, in, in this market? Um, And celebrate, you know, some of the good things that we have because quite frankly, if this facility isn't built, the team's going to be forced to leave. It's not our owners that are going to move the team because we live here in Hillsborough and enjoy it. But, you know, we'd probably sell the team and that new owner would have to move it. It's most likely going to move to maybe Washington because they've invested in sports teams or they've invested in stadiums a couple of different times. Um, But, now the state loses the revenue that comes with the income tax that all of our employees pay, that our players pay, that anything that comes through this venue pays. Uh, we now pay the new corporate activity tax as a business, all the local property taxes we pay. So the amount of taxes that between our business and our employees pay annually is, is, is pretty significant, not to mention the new ballpark will generate, I think 6.7 million just in payroll taxes alone for the construction then it's about 1.5 million per year for the operation for all the employees and artists and players and everything that goes through this venue. So you're talking about a 6.5 year payback for the state for that 15 million investment. And then the next 34 years of the lease is is an incremental revenue to the state. So we, we have our lobbyists has used the line it's not that the state can't afford to do this. it's not that if the state can afford to do this it's can the state afford not to do this because if the team is lost if this venue isn't built um, there will be an impact to the loss of tax revenue going to the state and then you'll miss on that upside of what the tax revenue will be if the facility's done
1: kale wambacher hillsborough hops for people who want to get involved who want to uh bang the drum, so to speak, uh, what can, can uh, sports fans do that can help?
4: I, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, there's a tool where you can find your, your legislator of the district you live in. Um, it's just like find my legislator. You type in your, your zip code and up pops who your, legis- your uh, House of Representatives and your senator is. Um, feel free to reach out to them. They've got email addresses listed on there. Shoot them an email and and let them know that this is a that you feel this is a worthy state investment. Um, at the end of the day, we can't do it without the state. Like we have turned over every rock. Um, we are not looking at the state as some big piggy bank. Um, we're just looking at it as a strategic partner. Like we we need their help, and um, the city is stepping up. You know we're hopeful that the county um, will will help us out a little bit. Our ownership has stepped up tremendously, more than just about any any ownership group in the country when it comes to minor league baseball. So we've we've got a path to get there, um, and we have a March fifteenth deadline from Major League Baseball that'll be kind of that final deadline. And um, session ends March tenth, so we have this pretty much month and a half window here um, to try to get this over the finish line.
1: All right, K.L., I appreciate you coming on. I, I, I think it makes sense for this to get across the finish line, but us posted I wanted to update. I was getting mixed messages. I think nobody quite knew what was going on, and I said let's get him on and uh, we'll get to the bottom of it. Thank you for coming on and sharing.
4: Yeah, my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on, and uh, we're excited to what this facility can do for our, for our future.
1: I agree with it. And I think, look, I always say, and I have said for years, what kind of city? And I'm not just talking about Portland. I'm talking about the surrounding cities: Hillsboro, Baberton, Tigard, uh, Milwaukee, Clackamas, Westland, Wilsonville. I, you know, what kind of city, what kind of area do we want to be? And I get it. Like it's tough. Construction costs rise. You, know, you got a, a state that is uh, looking at uh, bigger problems. It thinks than than sports. Uh, but, you know, I'm just back of the math, back of the napkin math here, looking at the income tax that would be derived from the player salaries and operations in Hillsboro. I'm thinking about a million and a half dollars a year in tax revenue. And and then that's not even to mention six, seven, eight million in revenue, tax revenue off the construction project um, feels like you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater I, I literally think you look at that equation if you're the state of Oregon or you're the county or the city of Hillsboro and you go okay um, does it make sense to lose seven eight nine million dollars in annual tax revenue um, over coming up with seven eight nine million dollars now to help this project get through um, I think they'll get it done but I think it's one of these common sense does everybody see the math? When they lay it out problems, because I had people who were telling me, oh, the hops are moving and other people telling me, no, 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 they're building a stadium. It's done. And so I reached out to KL and I said, well, what's what's the reality of this? And he like, well, it's somewhere in between. And they're still looking for the final pieces of the puzzle. But hopefully uh, lawmakers will look at it and look at it logically and go, OK, there is an investment that can be made here. Is it the county? Is it the city? Is it the state? Somebody? Is it all of them? that it becomes a mutually beneficial situation. Well
0: and also it's not a good sign if, you know, the the city and everybody can't fund a minor league team if you really want a major league team. Like that's not a good look.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you can't if you're not And that's been the knock. Hasn't that you know, my friends who don't live in the area, maybe your friends who don't live in the area, probably think the same thing. They all look over at us and they go, you know, what's wrong with you guys? You couldn't you couldn't support a major league baseball team. Are you not supporting a team? Are you not supporting the Blazers. What, you know, you don't, what, you know, Portland's not a big sports market. You know, I, I had other, you know, the Seattle times and other entities who had offered me jobs over the years, they almost mocked the sports market. And they said, you know, how far do you have to drive to go to a football game? You can't go to a major league baseball game. Like they always used it as a knock on the sports market telling me, Hey, come to Seattle or come to Southern California where there's more to do and more to see. Um, I, and I've always stayed, and I've always said there's plenty going on here, there's a lot there's more than I could talk about going on here, but they become right if a city and a county and a state don't want to invest in a project that is going to bring jobs, tax revenue, like when you just think about it, and, and I, I'm pretty sure that the feasibility studies, because I've looked at some of this stuff, it looks like the Construction project alone would generate six point seven million dollars in tax revenue. And the annual salaries of the players, taxes on the salaries of the players, and the payroll of the front office of the Hillsborough Hops is good for another 1.7 million. So there you go. If they're short seven or eight million dollars, there it is every year in perpetuity. So figure it out. Uh, leave it here we got so much to talk about punch it audio is coming up a little bit of surprising news out of tucson arizona just a few minutes ago university of arizona making a change with their athletic director uh, arizona's president dr robert robbins has been under fire recently um he has a 224 million dollar budget shortfall obviously jed fish leaving arizona to go to Washington was uh, a, a, a telltale sign of the financial woes at Arizona. And anybody tracking that knows Arizona was uh, upside down. But Dave Hickey, uh, been there for seven years as the AD. Uh, surprising move. Uh, Hickey's been a guest on this show. And uh, I had texted with him just a few days ago uh, prior to his hiring a Brent Brennan as the new football coach. And after the hire of Brent Brennan, the football coach, I thought he made a terrific hire in Brennan. But it uh, looks like uh, Hickey um, is under fire from the university president. I just find it interesting how this stuff all flows downhill. And obviously I've got you know more of a relationship with the AD at Arizona than the president at Arizona. But I also think, like, why does the president still have a job? He had a $224 million budget shortfall. And now the AD's out at Arizona, and uh, we'll get to the bottom of what happened there, but a little bit of a uh, uh, surprising move as Hickey is out. looks like February 2nd is his last day on the job, and so it will be abrupt. Uh, and now Brent Brennan, the new guy who is uh, the, athletic, or, uh, the athletic director's pick, will be operating without the guy who hired him, which is not an ideal situation. Um,
0: why? Why would they even let him make the hire and then get rid of him? Just you know, a couple like a week or so later, like that doesn't make any sense to me.
1: It's it's just wacky, and I I guess Arizona's athletic department has been struggling, and I'm gonna gather that the Jed Fish departure put a spotlight on the financial woes of the athletic department, where people were probably complaining, going, "Why is Jed Fish going to Washington? Why can't we offer him the same amount of money that the Huskies can?" what happened here and you know it cast a spotlight on it the budget for the uh, i'm looking at the budget at the arizona athletic department it's over a hundred million dollars and um robert robbins had said late last year that cutting sports was a possibility he said everything was on the table but i i i think this is more of the case of the head coach firing a coordinator to try to save himself you know if you're robert robbins it's the, it's the president's job to manage that budget on the campus. And he's upside down by $224 million. So Dave Hickey, out as the uh, Arizona Athletic Director, he'll be, the, he'll be the first one to fall. We'll not be surprised if Robert Robbins goes after, but uh, we'll see what happens there. Uh, love the interview with K.O. Wambacher in the, in, uh, the last uh, segment. Uh, I want to point out, too, the Eugene Emeralds are in a very similar situation. They're also asking the state of Oregon for some funding. So uh, they're trying to both save baseball in Eugene and save baseball in Hillsboro. It'll be really interesting to see if lawmakers uh, will step up and see the value of it. I think they should. I do think homelessness. I do think addiction. I do think schools are more important than baseball. But I'll go one further. Than our guest. I will say you need tax dollars to pay for those things that I just mentioned about that are more important. So, what the state should be doing is thinking more like a business and investing in spokes of the operation that are going to give you a return on your investment. So, if you're putting six or seven or $15 million into a baseball stadium and you're going to get seven or eight or nine million dollars a year in tax revenue. That feels like a pretty good deal. Like, hey, you're going to get your money back and then some over time. So keep an eye on that as it develops. I think it happens. Common sense usually wins, but you never know. Let's play some punch at audio.
3: We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth
1: Headquarters. Hey, we're all
7: about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top
6: audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey,
3: it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
1: Well, it came down to a missed field goal from 41 yards. Wide Right. Well, they all sort of said it. Here's the call on Westwood 1. Chiefs-Bills game at the end. Punch it. Tyler Bass will
3: try a 44-yard field goal to tie. The wind it is back. The snap is good. The ball put down. The kick is Ooh. up. And no good. Wide right. Wide right. The Bills kicker missed a field goal. Wide right. Jubilation for the Chiefs' sideline. One forty-three to go! Bass missing wide right from 44!
1: There's the call on Westwood 1. You would have caught it right here on 750 the game. Meanwhile on CBS, Jim Nance, Tony Romo, they had it as well. Punch it. And now you got
5: to bring out Bass. Sean McDermott, after his 1-for-3 performance last week, he has tremendous support in the building. If he has to make one for us, the game on the line, he will. 44 yards, bass. No, he doesn't make it. Wide right. Wow. The two most dreaded words in Buffalo have surfaced again.
1: There it is, the call on CBS. How did it sound in Korea? Well, I'm glad you asked. Punch it. it. <laughs> 벌어봤지만, it's
7: wide
1: right in any language the Buffalo Bills are saying all the right things in the wake of the loss Josh Allen saying they can run it back the window hasn't closed I looked at the ages of the players. I looked at the salary cap. I've looked at their draft pick. They're picking 28th in the draft. They have all their picks, including a compensatory pick. I do think they can get back. But I also am well aware of the Buffalo Bills' history. Super Bowl near misses. Loss after loss after loss after loss. Kind of starting to feel bad for the fans in Buffalo. The good thing I don't know for if the, you are. The
0: good thing for the Bills, though, John, is they at least have the most important part, and that's a quarterback, right? Like, I, I think Josh Allen, he proved last night, you know, didn't have a turnover. He was fine. He was good enough to win that game. You got to figure it out around him. But they at least have the most important part going forward. So I think as long as you have him, you'll always be a contender.
1: They do for now, and they've got him for now, and he's such a good story. But he's talking about the window to win. It's literally his career. That's the That's the window. And, and, and keep in mind, remember, John Elway and the Broncos, great example. They didn't. The Broncos didn't win when Elway was at his best. They won when they got Terrell Davis in the backfield, and they got a better defense. Then the Broncos punched through, and Elway still had enough. Will Josh Allen and the Bills be that team? Patrick Mahomes, he was the winner, but he spent a minute talking about josh allen's performance punch it
0: i've been on the other side of that it's tough you put in so much effort and work every single game um to play in these playoff games and he played his tail off um and, and gave them they gave them a chance to win the game um we were just able to come out with the win in the end um but that's two great football teams uh two great offenses defenses everything uh
1: going at it and uh we were able to come out on top this week really good football game i think if it had gone to overtime who knows You know, everybody's going to look at Bass and say he's the bum, but there were a lot of other plays in that game that could have made it go the other way. Great football game, great for the NFL, and, of course, great for 36 million people who saw the game on CBS. Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions are going to the NFC title game. Here's how the end of that one sounded as Baker Mayfield was intercepted on the final drive by Tampa.
3: Two receivers left, two wide right. Mayfield stands along the right hash in the shotgun. Gets the snap from the center, Hainsey. Throws over the middle, floats it high, and it's intercepted! Picked off by Derek Barnes! The former Purdue Boilermaker with the biggest interception of his life!
1: Sealing the deal for the Detroit Lions! Oh, my... Baker Mayfield said it felt like his heart got ripped out after the game. He was on a one-year deal worth $4 million. The Bucs must want him back. And he must want to cash in. He says he wants to re-sign. But I think it was a, a very magical season for Tampa. A team that a lot of people didn't have high expectations for. Meanwhile, Dan Campbell and the Lions... They're just proud. They're beaming right now. And they'll get San Francisco in the next round. Here's Campbell. Punch it.
3: Well, I think it's important, right? You, I mean, you can't... You know, it's not the first thing you think of if you go to L.A. Or just in general, right? You got the sun. You got the beach. You got plenty of other things going on in here, man. And it's harsh winters, right? Auto industry. Blue collar. Things aren't always easy. And I just think that's what we're about. And that, that was... You know, you want something the city can be proud of. Though You can look at those guys and say, man, I can back that guy. I can back that team. You know, I can resonate with those group of guys. They're kind of salty. You know, they, they don't quit. They play hard. And so I, I feel like we've done that. And I think these guys, you know, they have a kinship with this city in this area. And they love it.
1: Detroit will be going to the Bay Area to play the 49ers in the NFC title game. They will get Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers, of course. Chris Long says he likes the lions in that matchup. Why punch it?
5: Hey, if it's 40 and it's raining, I don't like Jared Goff in that spot. Okay. But I looked at the forecast is 64. It's sunny. A lot can change in a week. Um, I think with their ability to run the football, you know, green Bay came out of the Dallas game and you might say, this is San Francisco. It's different. They give up the same per pop on the ground, Dallas and San Francisco. And you saw that they could move the ball on the ground. Um, I think for Detroit, they can absolutely move the ball on the ground. Uh, And if if the weather's okay, I think Jared Goff's going to see some things he likes in coverage.
1: Uh, Look, I think Detroit's a a fine football team, but I think the 49ers, if they play a better game than they did last uh, Saturday, I think the 49ers win it. If they don't, if they're still rusty, if Debo Samuels isn't in the lineup. If Brock Purdy's making mistakes and George Kittle's dropping passes, the Lions are going to get him. Does what You're Chris the, Long yeah. say,
0: were you at all about the 49ers no. defense being vulnerable?
1: No. I I saw the 49ers defense play just fine in in under bad circumstances against the uh against the Packers. I thought, you know, the Niners' made defense made a couple of big plays. Um and and I thought, you know, Green Bay. I saw Green Bay early in the year and then I kind of forgot about them. And then I just picked them back up in the playoffs, and I thought, well, the Cowboys game, maybe they looked really good. I was really impressed with Green Bay's players. Green Bay's got some good players. And I think Jordan Love, he's sniffing around it. Big-time success. Another year under his belt. I think the Packers have a lot to be excited about. Lions, too. I think they have a bright future. But for the 49ers, it's a right-now equation. they got to win now. Kyle Shanahan knows it. Rex Ryan talking about Bill Belichick. He thinks he might be the Bills' next head coach. Punch it.
3: If you think, like ownership, all right? They fired me, I was 500. They fired me because they didn't think we can go any further. Well, I'm saying if ownership sits back and goes, you know what? This guy's done a great job as a coach, but is he the right guy to get us to the next level? I'm just throwing it out there. And and, and believe me, I'm not just being reckless when I'm saying it. I go, if you're going to move on from him, make no mistake, it's for one guy. It's for Bill Belichick.
1: Wow, Sean McDermott, would he be out and Bill Belichick in? Feels a little risky. I don't know if the Buffalo players, are they going to get on the Belichick train after looking at him as the uh, enemy for all those years? Uh, It's an interesting thought because, yeah, you can blow up the roster or you can blow up the head coach. And if you're Buffalo and you feel like you're close, maybe it is a McDermott question. Meanwhile, in the Big Ten, fans at Ohio State stormed the court. Ohio State Iowa game. Caitlin Clark on the court got ran into by a fan who was celebrating and knocked down. Here's Caitlin Clark. Punch it. Yeah,
2: I'm okay. Thank you. Like great environment. Obviously, like these are the games you'd love to play in. 18,000 people here. Um, you know, obviously, I can see they're storming the court, which is totally. It was fine and got, I mean good for their students great one for them and I was just trying to exit the court as quickly as possible so I started running and I was absolutely just hammered by somebody trying to run onto the court and basically blindsided and um, you know kind of scary could have caused a pretty serious injury to me and knocked the win out of me but um, luckily my teammates kind of picked me up and got me off the court so um, and their ad already came and apologized to me so I really appreciate that and um, you know, this just what comes with the territory. I mean, I'm sure they tried their best to do whatever they could. Obviously, it didn't work, and that's disappointing. But, um, you know, just focus now on the game and, you know, ways we can get better.
1: I don't know if what I'm about to say is going to be a popular opinion or not, but it, I I kind of feel like it's unfortunate she got ran into. I saw the video. It didn't look fun. But I also am looking at this from a standpoint of women's college basketball. And I'm looking at Tara Ruer, you know, becoming the all-time winningest coach over the weekend. 18,000 at an Ohio State-Iowa women's basketball game. Scott Ruick and the Oregon State women playing out of their minds this season. Great basketball. And 18,000 fans storming the court at Ohio State. I think, you know, yeah, you don't ideally want fans running into Caitlin Clark and knocking her down. But I also want to kind of celebrate the idea that there was 18,000 fans at a women's college basketball game, and some of them felt inclined, moved enough by the play on the court to storm the court. Iowa coach sounding off. She wasn't happy. Lisa Bluter, punch it. You know, it's unfortunate the game ended that way, and Caitlin gets taken out on the floor. Um get some inappropriate words yelled at her by fans, by students. Um, that just should not happen. it should not happen. Our players should be safe they should be able to walk off the floor um, I, that's uh, that's very disappointing. I, I think Ohio State great team great environment but but obviously very disappointed with the post game with our players getting injured trying to walk out of the gym. That's wrong. Uh, yeah look I don't know if she's injured. she got knocked down she's fine she got up she's okay. Let's let's knock on wood and say hey that silver lining she's okay. Yes, Ohio State should do a better job of trying to control the court after the game, but this is part of college basketball. Stephen, where do you stand on storming the court, player safety, all that?
0: Yeah, I love the the court storming. Like that's part of college sports, college basketball especially and you're right like Women's college basketball doesn't get a lot of court storms. So to have that emotion of all the fans there and the emotions in the arena and to feel that you need to rush the court after a win like that is great. Now, I blame a little bit on, you know, the student that ran into Caitlin Clark. Like she shouldn't be running around with her phone in the air, right? Like have awareness of where you're going. Live in the moment, don't live it on your phone. It, the moment's not going to look great in your phone anyways. Like just embrace that moment and have fun. I also think Caitlin Clark exaggerated a little bit on the flop. Seemed like a little flop there uh, out of Caitlin Clark. But you know what? When you're running around and you get hit out of nowhere, yeah, it's going to take an effect. So I don't know. I love a court storm. I think it's fine. I think it's unfortunate what happened, and luckily nothing worse happened. Uh, but I think there's there's lots of blame to go around to lots of people.
1: Yeah, and I think I'm left going, let's not miss the idea that there were 18,000 fans at this game and people wanted to storm the court. That's what you want. That's what college basketball, women's college basketball, has been begging for, asking for, waiting for. You've got it. Ohio State must do better, especially fans. Like I've been in that situation on the field at at Research Stadium and Atkinson Stadium, and a lot of other places. I was at Stanford Stadium once when Stanford beat Oregon, and fans, the Stanford students, came over the rail. A bunch of engineering majors came over the ra- came over the rail. Stanford trees running around. But I've been on the field, you know, at Otson, when fans will jump the field and run onto the, jump the railings and run onto the field, and you know I've been standing by Phil Knight a couple times, and I and I you know he's he was in his eighties, and fans are just sprinting onto the field, and I'm like, hey, if some fans not paying attention and clocks Phil Knight accidentally, that could be really bad, and so you kind of have to have your head on a swivel in those moments because you know the fans aren't trying to target anybody. But, you know, clearly the fan at Ohio State was just running onto the court, and Caitlin Clark is trying to walk off, and she gets blindsided. It's It, it was just, I think, an unfortunate convergence of things, the least of which is that, you know, Ohio State security probably wasn't thinking, are we in a court storming moment tonight? That's Punch It Audio. We got great stuff still ahead. I want you to leave it here. The five at five is coming up with Anna and much more. I think the NFL. Um, Playoffs delivered, of course, over the weekend. Had some good games. But the fact that the Niners-Packers game was a close game benefited the uh, television ratings, of course. 36 million-plus tuned into that game. And certainly uh, both the Lions and the Buccaneers and the Bills and the Chiefs on Sunday delivered uh, games that were worth sticking around to see how they ended ended up. Um, Josh Allen, really good story, right? Bills quarterback. Anna has popped into the studio. Anna, you mentioned, um, you know, you you knew, you knew enough about the Josh Allen story. You were telling our 7-year-old and our 9-year-old as we were watching the Bills-Chiefs game um, how that guy bet on himself, believed in himself when few others would.
8: Yeah, uh, it was just a post that caught my eye. You know, I'm getting more sports information, I think, through osmosis. It was just something that I saw where he had written letters to dozens and dozens of universities asking to play football for them. And he got one letter back, and that was from Wyoming, and that's where he wound so he up playing. Up.
1: He wrote a letter to Oregon. He did. Yeah, well, Oregon yeah, was included and on the list. Oregon was included, and they didn't write him back. Um,
8: it was just, I mean, I yeah. like sharing stuff like that with the kids because it's a story of resilience and betting on yourself and gosh how low he must have felt at certain points in his career
1: i i did a little research on josh allen and i want to kind of segue into something else here because guy was a phenomenal athlete we saw him running with the football and throwing the football and really fun to watch as a football player right but go back to high school for josh allen josh allen played on his high school basketball team steven did you know that Uh, no, I
0: did not know that for sure, but that makes a lot of sense. Leading
1: scorer. Leading scorer on his high school basketball team. I mean, great
0: athlete, right? I mean, probably just decent people.
1: Yep. And he also pitched for his high school baseball team and had a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Played three sports in high school. Um, A lot of professional athletes are multi-sport stars. Anna, you brought up a story in the last commercial break that I think dovetails nicely with this story. Josh Allen, three sports star in the NFL success story. But what is going on with youth sports in, uh, in the study that you saw?
8: The American Academy of Pediatrics just released a report today that about 70%, 70, percent of kids drop out of organized sports by age 13. And the so called professionalism of youth sports can't be understated as a significant factor as to why. Um, I mean, this is, you know, the nation's leading group of pediatricians is saying that athletics among youth has just, it's, it's off the rails, because the pressure to succeed as a, a young age, um, that playing sports as a means to an end ha- is contributed to loss of enjoyment in sports widespread burnout, overuse injuries, and kids just being sick of it by 13.
1: All right, so kids are burning out, and it's the, it's the specialization that's causing the burnout and the pressure of, hey, this is about getting a scholarship. This isn't about uh, just being part of a team, uh, having fun, uh, deriving joy from the moment you're in, playing the season that you're in. We have seen it firsthand with club sports off the rails, and I'm sure many of our listeners are nodding their heads right now, as you have seen club sports ruin it for your kid. Um, I'm not going to say they ruined it for our kid, but I did know that she'd hit about 15, 16, and she'd had enough of the club volleyball scene. And she was just like, I want to do some other things. And I think it does when you do one thing over and over and you don't diversify and you don't allow yourself a break, as Josh Allen did in high school. As a Dominican Sue did, he played soccer. He played football. He, you know, he, you got to be able to do other things. And we have had time and again, Hall of Famers on this show, professional athletes of the highest caliber, on this show, who have all said, "Yeah, I played hockey and pitched. Oh, I played football and I played basketball. Oh, I played baseball and I ran track." Like you have to have um, some semblance of balance in your life. And I think we're seeing kind of this cottage industry that is the youth sports industry, run by adults, ruin it for kids.
8: It's interesting because the study doesn't just point to the problems. It does offer solutions. It's saying it's offering several specific things. One, promote athletics as a way to develop healthy habits, not as a means to an end.
1: Like means to end, you mean scholarship.
8: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. as to what's going to happen someday in high school, college, the Olympics, or the pros.
1: I I can't tell you how many parents I've had conversations with, one-on-one, and they've said to me, but, you know, I think my kid has a chance to get a scholarship. And I'm looking back at them like, have you done the numbers? Like, have you seen, like, yes, in this gym, there might be, uh, you know, a hundred kids. There might be one or two that can go get a Division One scholarship. Might be one or two. Um, and, by the way, uh, no amount of extra lessons, uh, no amount of uh, paying the right coach or being with the right program, that ain't going to do it. I can tell you I can walk into a gym and coaches can look at the 12-year-olds and pretty much pick out who the scholarship athletes are after watching them play for a little bit. Yes, you can get better within your discipline. Yes, you can improve. Yes, there are skills you can build. But don't let any coach fool you into the idea that they have the magic formula to get your kid a scholarship. It's a lie.
8: The pediatricians also just want parents to keep in mind that playing one sport all the time may wind up hurting their kid. Increased risk of injury, decreased performance, overtraining syndrome, and it can affect your child psychologically.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. Diversify your interests uh, if you want your kid to only play one sport, I suggest you eat only one kind of food, all day long, three meals a day, and see how that goes. Steven, uh, I want some thoughts from you on this on the other side of the break, but I'm just it fires me up. Because, what food I'd have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that food <laughs> if you had to have it all the time? Frosted flakes. Yeah, Anna and I had a funny interaction today <laughs> in an Asian restaurant. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I got to tell you this story coming up. <laughs> They're never going to sell this one item that they had on the menu. I'll tell you what it was next. We had one of these dilemmas that comes up today at lunch. Anna and I decided to grab a grab a bite to eat. I hate when people say that. They got a bite to eat. We went to lunch. And uh, we went to a, I'm not going to say the name of the restaurant. Went to an Asian restaurant. And sometimes, because English is not the first language, you'll see things that come up on the menu that aren't right. But this particular place you order at the counter and the menu's up in front of you and it's a big, giant, lit-up, fancy menu on the wall and Anna nudges me and she says, I don't think I'll be getting the spider roll. There was a um, spider roll and it was supposed to say spider crab roll, except crab was spelled with a P. So it said spider crap roll. I said, not going to sell many of those. And Anna said, do you think I should tell them? And she also said, I think it comes better from an Asian person than it would coming from you.
0: <laughs> the bald white guy.
8: <laughs> hey, I just tell it like it is, okay? <laughs> just,
1: is it a better criticism if it comes from somebody who also, you know, you is it better received, less... Like, cause if I point at it, they're going, oh, there's the, there's the white guy making fun of our English as a second language. When in fact, you also learned English as a second language. Right. So, it's I, like, better from you?
8: I, I- no, I spent my childhood correcting my parents on their English, so it's kind of second
0: nature. Hundred percent better from Anna. Hundred percent,
1: Stephen. We were in Beijing during the Olympics, oh, and yeah. this was... stuff would come up on the menus because they were trying to cater to visiting, you know, tourists and English-speaking people, and so they put out like a second menu at every restaurant. Oh yeah, and the restaurant would have like stewed cock mm-hmm. on the menu. Yep, and I'd be like, no. Uh huh, <laughs> and and then after a little probing, it turns out that's stewed chicken. You know, there is so many lost in translation moments in Beijing, and, I, and yes,
8: it's uh, it's very yeah. entertaining.
1: I'm gonna go with the stewed chicken. Yeah, can you please change that on the menu so I can <laughs> digest it without feeling queasy um no but so you you did you didn't do it at the counter i was surprised you didn't correct
8: her. well because there were a lot of customers in the restaurant so i was kind of looking for people i mean she's asian but like she's clearly korean and i'm chinese so i and i don't speak korean so i wanted to communicate it to her but i was waiting for more of the customers to clear out just yeah. to kind of quietly it was that,
1: that was a panel. moment too steven because i turned to anna and i says uh do you think she speaks mandarin and she says she's korean and i i wanted I to be mean, like she might speak Mandarin. does that not answer my question like so i so uh i'm
8: just walking around with Larry yeah, David it's good it's I, uh,
1: all good it's come up a few times you know because like sometimes we'll be in a movie and something will be said and i'll go what did they say and you go that's japanese i go okay sorry <laughs> sorry um but i i mean no offense by this but the the spider crap role Probably they didn't sell any. Well, she said that. She goes, "Oh no, wonder we haven't been selling any." Of those. <laughs> but how did the discussion go cuz I didn't get to hear it. You kind of pulled her aside.
8: I just said you have a misspelling that word is wrong and it means poop.
1: Yeah. And and what did she say? <laughs>
8: and she laughed. She took a moment to like process it. And uh, and then she understood what I meant. It's
1: not the first time I've seen that, too, on oh, a really? on a menu, like a Asian menu. Is the P and the B something that gets reversed a lot? Like crab? Crap? I don't know. Is it turned into, you know, is I, that an issue? I can't, I can't. You tell me. I
8: can't speak on a more general sense.
1: <laughs> Can you speak for all of Asia <laughs> yeah. right now? What's going on with the P and the B? <laughs> yeah.
0: The official word for Anna right now. Yeah, yeah, I can't make that declaration. All right,
1: so what did she say? Ultimately, it get changed? What Ultimately,
8: happened? Ultimately, she thanked me because she said, oh, I'm glad you told me. Because I just wasn't sure. I was like, has anyone pointed it out to her yet? And on the off chance no one had, I just wanted to make sure she knew. That's what
1: if she had looked at it and she looked back at you and went, no, it's right? <laughs> Well, (laughs) then I'd have to shake my
8: head and walk away. Check, please. I I tried. tried. (laughs) There you
1: go. Uh, Steven, before we get into the 5 at 5, we're talking about youth sports. Real problem with coaches pushing for specialization. You've got kids. You've played sports. I'm a big proponent of letting kids play sports. Make it enjoyable. Make it fun. Go get an academic scholarship if you want to be uh, militant about it. Um, But uh, don't get sucked into the illusion that these uh, working harder, paying more, being with the right club is going to result in that scholarship. Where do you stand?
0: Yeah, 100% with you on this one. I mean, when I grew up, I played three sports. I played soccer, basketball, baseball. And then when I, you know, I stopped playing baseball, I did track when I was in high school some. And, um, yeah, it, it's good to get away from the sport that you actually care about the most. And it also helps you. Like, not only, it, you know, it you don't have to play one sport to get better at it. You can play another sport and it, you know, gets your hand-eye coordination better. It, it gets your mind off of it and makes you work on other skills then you can adapt to, to that, and you know, like you said, I have kids. Uh, my oldest is nine. He plays on a third, fourth grade basketball team. Uh, the assistant coach he listens to the show. He, he's a great guy, great coaches, and I think that's where it comes with. Like, you have to be almost lucky sometimes to get good coaches. Yeah, and I think that's where it matters. Like the coaches for my son are awesome. Like they, you know, they get after the kids, but they also are like you know what we love you guys. You guys played hard, and they're always working on them. And they, oh, you you can tell that they are teaching them with love and out of respect and that they want what's best for them. And they're not trying to push them to do anything bad. And I see it even like on this level, like some of these coaches are just crazy people. Like they are crazy. They're standing the entire game. They are screaming at the kids, like just unloading on them. And it's just uncomfortable for me. Like, I just I I could never be a coach, but like I could never yell at a third or fourth grader because they messed up in one basketball game. Like it doesn't I, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's it, it's embarrassing at the same time. Like it's really sad sometimes. And I like I my my son has been on some teams that don't have the greatest of coaches, and it's not fun for him. But now he has a good team. He has a good with good coaches, good kids, and it's a lot of fun. I think that's the most important thing. And you know what? If he wants to play when he gets older, he can. But if it's not, you know, go, you're right. Go try to get an academic scholarship. That's going to be much easier to get than an athletic scholarship. I can tell you that.
8: But what do, I mean, what advice can we offer to parents, though? Because I think there is incredible pressure at younger and younger ages now for kids to specialize. There yeah. are club coaches with kids as young as 10 that are saying, I-, I need you to commit to this sport year round, and I need you to not play other sports if
0: you want to continue to play. That's a red
1: flag. Team. That, to me, is a red flag. If a coach is saying that, that is a red flag moment.
0: It's all business now. It's just yeah. one big giant business. And just try, if you are a parent, just try to remember that, like, it is a sales job for a lot of these people that they're trying to make as much money as possible. They may care about your kid, but they probably don't. They probably care about that paycheck they're going to charge
1: yeah. you. They care about the extra lessons. They care about the uh, the thousands of dollars that you're going to pay to belong to the club um, and the summer training and the off-season training programs that they want bustling with activity and kids. Uh, I saw something really interesting when we first got into the club scene. I saw, you know, immediately at 12, I was watching 12-year-old girls volleyball, okay? Mm -hmm. I had no real experience covering volleyball, but other than, like, I'd covered the Olympics, you know? And so you see, like, the best in the world, and now all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, developmental volleyball. Mm -hmm. And it was evident to me at age 12, like, there were two or three kids in the entire Portland region who just stood out. Mm-hmm. And I went, at the time, I was like, that kid's going to be a Pac-12 player. Right. Two or three. And I have to tell you, two of them, one's at Washington now and one's at Oregon. And I, I, I saw it, and I'm not a volleyball expert, but I also saw those parents of those two kids do something different. Which is? And you probably don't even remember this. There was an early season tournament, and their families were going on a vacation. Yeah. They took the kid and they went on vacation. And it caused a mild uproar in the club Mm -hmm. that the best player in the club was not going to be at one of the events, one of the tournaments, because it was like blasphemy. Oh, you have to be there. You have to be committed. You have to be involved. And I was like, gosh, that kid's, you know, not going to do it. I get it now. The parents were going, my kid needs a break. We could do this year round. But this is a marathon. They were in it for they knew they were going to be in it when that kid was in their 20s. And they were going, you know, we need to pull back here and there. Mm -hmm. And I realize now, because what the clubs will sell you on is you need the extra lessons. You know, so-and-so is getting the extra lessons. Your kid's not. Like, they create that conflict internally for the parents. And as a parent, you're like, I love my kid. I better pay for the extra lessons, push my kid into it. Because if they're not doing it and the other person's doing it, the other person's going to get ahead. And they, they foster this competitive thing between the kids that really shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be a thing. I got great advice from one club coach. I asked him, I said, with our older kid who was, mm-hmm. you know, t- pushing towards 14, 15, I said, what do you recommend? And he said, there's two paths. You go all in, you lose your mind, you put her in everything, she burns out on the sport, or you let her be a kid this summer. <laughs> and, you know, we pulled her back and let her be a kid mm-hmm. in the summer because I was well aware. I was looking at her, I'm like, she's five, six. At She's time, a middle yeah. blocker. Right. She's not going to be a middle <laughs> blocker in a Division One volleyball team. Good luck. But meanwhile, I got parents on my left and right going, you know, I we're going to try out for the Junior Olympics. And I'm looking at them like, do you know how many players there are in the country? <laughs> like, you know, like not only in this gym. Mm-hmm. Your kid's the fifth best player in this gym. Like, you know, it, it's just insane to me. Let your kid be a kid. Go get a scholarship academically and and – Look at the sports experience as, this is my advice, it's an additive experience. What you should be getting out of your youth sports experience is being around other healthy kids, um, building confidence in yourself, and, um, and also being part of something bigger than yourself, being part of a team. The end goal shouldn't be scholarship, scholarship, scholarship. If you're thinking that way, I would like you to take a deep breath and step back because I can tell you at age 15, your kid is going to go, I don't want to go to the gym anymore. I'm out.
0: It's it's all about branding, too. Like, these, uh, the personal traders, they'll always latch on to the one person that they worked with because that's the one thing they can sell. It's like, oh, I helped this person get to this place. Well, you can also look at how many other people you helped. Did you get anyone else to that place? Probably not because they weren't good enough, right? Like you said, you're only as good right. as your skills are how big you are, how fast you are, how strong you are. They're not going to help you get to that next level. So it's all about, you know they're going to latch on to the one thing that they can sell you on. And it's just its just a money grab, man. It's turned in, It's turned into big business, which is but really I, unfortunate for the kids.
8: I just don't know if there's any turning back. Like, I feel like this is a subculture of particularly American society that has gone so far down the road, I don't know how it turns around. Like, I don't even know if this study from the American Academy of Pediatrics that says in no uncertain terms, this is bad for kids – I don't think that's going to be enough to like turn the train around.
1: It won't be, but um, we're going to have an opportunity. We have a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old. And the 7-year-old has shown some skill in soccer. She's good. yeah, For her age, she's good. Sure. And I'm already hearing from other parents, are you signing her up for the (laughs) club? Are you doing... And we're like, hell no. We've been to the puppet show. I've seen the strings. We'll see you when she's 12. She's going to work on having fun and having a Capri Sun at the end of the game. And and cleaning her room, damn it. So that's where we are. All right, let's get to the five at five. We got the five biggest stories in sports. What did Anna believe that they were? We'll find out. Let's do it.
7: The five at five. Number one.
8: Well the 49ers don't yet know yet whether they will in fact have Debo Samuel for Sunday's NFC championship game but they do know there's a chance turns out that his uh, shoulder does not have a fracture in it um, so but the decision hasn't been made yet whether he'll actually play
1: it's this is the Niners are in a good position I think they can beat the, the Lions without Debo like obviously if they've got him and he's healthy you want to play him But I think they can win this game without him. I think they're the better team. They're playing at home. I think they can get to the Super Bowl without him. So the question to me becomes, is it worth playing him in this game if you know that you got an extra 20 days of rest between now and the Super Bowl where you really are going to need him? You're going to need him to beat the Baltimore Ravens or the Kansas City Chiefs. I think the Niners can get by the Lions without Debo, but let's see what happens um, you know, he's 50-50, they're saying. He did not get a fracture in his shoulder, but um, he's still hurting. And so I kind of think, you know, if he can't go, if he's not 100%, I think you wait and you you hold him out for the Super Bowl. I might be in the minority, though. Number two. Uh,
8: this story is rather amusing. Buffalo is refuting claims that it shut off the Chiefs' hot water after their playoff game on (laughs) Sunday night. Uh, A rep for the city says the allegations are false. This uh, complaint came about from Chiefs offensive lineman Donovan Smith, who went publicly with the accusation on Twitter just after the win. They said he claimed that the sh- hot water in the locker rooms had been shut off at Highmark Stadium. A spokesperson uh, for Erie County, which owns a stadium, says that's not even possible. There's no way to turn off the hot water on one side or the other. Kind of funny. There's just hot water tanks that feed both the home and away locker rooms. I think it's
1: really easy for people to fall into victim mentality. and if You know, it's confirmation bias. I think the bigger thing was that the Bills players left the field sad and the Chiefs players left the field dodging snowballs. And so they're getting snowballs (laughs) thrown at him. Patrick Mahomes tried to run over to say hi to kids on the rail and snowballs are coming from Philadelphia, you know, filing down at him. And so I think it becomes really easy to kind of fall into the mentality of, you know, oh, look at them. You know, maybe you just, maybe they ran out of hot water, Donovan Smith. You know, it wasn't
8: it's still unfortunate to play a t- a game in those temperatures. Yeah. All you want is a hot shower.
0: I don't know. I would have <laughs> thrown a snowball at Jason Kelsey. That's for
1: sure. <laughs> What'd you make of that? <laughs> hey, him taking his shirt off. I, and- I
0: have hot takes about it. I hate it. I hate it. You I hate it. I can't stand the Kelsey's. They can go away. I love Taylor Swift. I <laughs> Aww, love Taylor Swift.
8: Even when he lifted the little girl up so she could show her poster.
0: That's fine. But guess what? Your brother's playing. It's not about you. He made the entire game about him by going to tailgate with all the fans before. Take his shirt off in a 60 degree suite where it's not super cold. Stop making it about you, man. It's about your brother. Mm-hmm.
1: I had my tweet already, like, when the Chiefs lost. I was going to say the Kelsies are out of the playoffs for good. But not, not for good. They might get to the Super Bowl now. Could you imagine the Taylor Swift hysteria if the Chiefs make the Super Bowl? My
0: dad is convinced that the NFL is going to rig it so Taylor Swift gets to the Super Bowl. Mm.
1: Usher's supposed to do the halftime show for the Super Bowl. I bet you there will be a cameo by Taylor Swift if the Chiefs make it. Like, all of a sudden, they'll cut to the— Luxury suite, and she'll a cameo. Like she'll be dancing, yeah, definitely. Yep.
8: Yeah, I mean, she doesn't need a cameo. The camera goes to her. Do you every think 10 the NFL seconds.
1: is rooting for that? Do you think that they're oh, all jazzed? Hundred
0: percent, about... yeah, hundred percent. They helps. want Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl.
1: Well, number three, just get um, off my screens, spoke... Kelsey's.
8: <laughs> <laughs> you spoke about the lions earlier. I'm amused by this. They haven't made the NFC Championship in 32 years. And just for a little perspective, the last time this happened, iPods didn't yet exist, Wow! text messaging wasn't yet invented, Amazon, Google, MySpace, and Facebook did not exist, neither did the PlayStation or the Xbox, and uh, Coach Dan Campbell was still in high school. 1991.
1: 1991. No cell phones, no Facebook. A simpler time. No MySpace even, you know? I feel like it Where were bad. you in 91, Anna? Middle school. You were in middle school? Park
8: Rose Middle School. There you go. Yeah.
1: 1991. Go, go Pacers. I was in college. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that just got weird. Steven, where were you in 91. Uh,
0: January of 91, I would have been four, about to turn five, just living the time of my life. I was going to
8: say, oh, he was born. Okay, he I, existed.
1: I was in a bar.
8: <laughs> <laughs> in college. Well, good but luck to a, the Lions. By the bar. way, the
1: last time they made it there, Barry Sanders on that team in 91, they lost 41-10 to 10 to uh, Washington in that game. Second NFC Championship game in team history. Prior to that, they... Uh, 1957, they were uh, in the conference title game, and uh, that was pre uh, pre uh, AFL NFL merger. But uh, good good luck to the Lions. I just kind of think the road for them ends there here and now. I think they still have a brighter future though. You talk about the window to win in Buffalo. You can debate whether Buffalo has a narrow win or a narrow window or a wide window. Uh, and I when I look at the four teams that are playing. I think San Francisco, of the four teams left, has the narrowest window. Because I think they. they it's kind of like they're at their best now, and if they're not going to win it now, they're not going to win it. And Buffalo, you know, we could probably make that argument a week ago, but they're out now. I think the Lions have a bright future. I think the Ravens will continue to figure it out. Their their strength, I think, is defense and making your life miserable. Um, and... And I, I think after that, you look at the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. As long as he's in uniform, as long as Fifteen's out there, you got a chance. But I, I think the Lions of the of the four teams that are playing feel like the youngest, least mature team of the four.
5: Number four. Uh,
8: Kevin Durant. Is asking why he's not included in the NBA greatest of all time debate saying what haven't I done he's telling the Arizona Republic that why shouldn't I be in that conversation that's the question you should ask why not what haven't I done and then he answered his own question by saying because I went to the Warriors
1: it's not just that (laughs) but you know look 13-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA selection, regular season MVP, scoring titles, finals MVP twice, two rings. He'll get to 30,000 points. But I have never once considered him in the conversation in the same room as Michael Jordan or LeBron or Kobe. He does not prompt those conversations. And I think it's it goes back to kind of like, you know, we can try to drill down on it. It's not that he just joined a team he literally joined a team he couldn't beat I think they would have won it without him in fact I don't know why is he not in the goat conversation
0: Um, I think it's just I think the Warriors thing does people hold, do hold that against him because they will say that he doesn't have real championships which I think is just false and BS Like, it, yeah he joined the Warriors but he also wanted to do it to win a championship like that's the ultimate goal in sports is to win the championship that's what he did he went to the best team i don't i've never blamed him for that i also just think he played in the generation with lebron and lebron's always been considered better than he has right like lebron's won all those mvps he's won titles um you know without joining these uh you know so-called super teams he won in cleveland the one which i think really helps lebron out so i don't know i just think he's never been considered the best player in the sport when he's played, so he's he's not going to be the GOAT of all time. Yeah, he's never been
1: the best player in any one season, like, you know, undeniably.
0: Right, exactly. Where I think if you're talking about Jordan LeBron, like, you could argue, yeah, these guys were the best players in a whole generation, where Durant has always never been at the very top.
1: He's also never won a championship without another MVP on the roster. And didn't win with his original franchise.
8: Well, and he went to the Warriors right after, you know, they beat his thunder yeah
1: Yeah. can't beat him join him
8: he went directly to
1: the warriors in
0: fairness though they they didn't win the championship the year he went there they were coming off the loss they won 73 games lost in the finals Hmm. he was the missing piece
1: he um he also he hasn't really had success since the warriors as a team right like even now i kind of look at him and i think "A, a little underwhelming this season
0: no, that's one hundred percent correct. Uh, you know they've had numerous times where they, you know, his teams should be better and they're not. You talk about you know just young teams and, and the futures of football teams. That Thunder team, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, like they, that was thought to be you know the dynasty of the making, and then it just went away because they couldn't coexist. So I, I think there's some not there's knocks against Durant. People don't like him personally, but I don't think that's the reason why he's not in the GoCom.
1: I just think people who never saw Michael Jordan play, like. I, I I watched Michael Jordan, and if you watched Michael Jordan in his prime, you saw what a killer he was on the court. You would not consider Kevin Durant at any juncture as part of that conversation.
0: And people will bring up stats, but it's a completely different game from now I and mean, five yeah. years ago. It's a different game, so it's 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 irrelevant to compare stats of when Jordan played to now when Durant plays. I
1: I I kind of think like if I have to rank the greatest of all time. Like, uh, the, the players I saw, I'm going to go Jordan, and I'm going to put LeBron second, Kobe third, although I think two and three are pretty interchangeable. Number five. Finally.
8: Speaking of LeBron, I wonder, Stephen, if you saw this last night. Um, he went coach mode uh, during the game against the Trailblazers last night. So six minutes remaining, Lakers leading by 23. LeBron appears to decide that he's ready to take a seat on the bench. Okay. Have some rest. I'm done. So he uh, opts to commit a foul to stop the action, then calls a timeout, and ultimately appeared to take himself out of the game. Meanwhile, Darvin Ham seemed to initially express confusion, followed by what looked like an agreement. (laughs) And apparently this is not the first time that uh, LeBron has done this.
0: Well, it's wow. like, what are you going to do? If you're Darvin Ham, are you going to argue with LeBron James? Like, no, like, you'll lose your job. He already's on the hot seat. LeBron, LeBron doesn't like him already. He's going to go against him. I don't know. This is why LeBron drives me crazy. He wants to act like, you know, he's the GM and the coach and the player. And then when it doesn't work out, it's never his fault.
1: It's just funny, though. And it's funny that it ha- this kind of stuff always seems to happen against teams like the Blazers. <laughs> <laughs> LeBron's like, I got this. Let me just coach this Play, one. Player
0: Look. coach tonight. That's fine.
1: You know, I had a reader, by the way. That's the 5 at 5. But I had a reader with a suggestion for uh, the uh, DeAndre Ayton problem with him unable to get out of his driveway. Um, Blazers need to get that guy a Zamboni. (laughs) Can you imagine how much fun that would have been? DeAndre driving down the freeway on a Zamboni getting to the (laughs) arena. There you go. That was the answer to all their problems. Uh, Leave it here. Steven and I have so much more to talk about Zambonis and more next. Consensus is the Niners and the Ravens. But I think you could build a case, certainly with Patrick Mahomes in this equation. And the 49ers not looking that great in the divisional round. You could build a case for anybody making it to the Super Bowl. Uh, what Super Bowl does the NFL want? What Super Bowl do you want? 503 417 Let's bring out the conspiracy theories here. What Super Bowl does the NFL want? I think the NFL would love nothing more than to have Taylor Swift and the Kansas City Chiefs in the football game against the 49ers, big market, Bay Area, number five market in the country. I think it would draw. I think Taylor Swift added to the Usher halftime show would be a home run. I think that is the Super Bowl that the NFL wants. The Super Bowl I want to see, I want to see a rematch of the Niners and Ravens from Christmas Day. The Ravens pounded the Niners 33 19. Steven, what does the NFL want and what do you want?
0: Uh, NFL definitely wants 49ers and the Chiefs. I think that's, I think that, I don't don't know how you could argue any other way that's not what the NFL would want. Just with the Taylor Swift thing, um, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, like that is a lot of star power that you are putting out there. For me, I do want the Ravens in the Super Bowl over the Chiefs. I think the Ravens are a more elite team than the Kansas City Chiefs. So I want the Ravens in. I think I kinda want the Lions in there, John. I think the Lions, um, you know, it'll be it would be a really good story, right? And and Dan Campbell, I'm not the biggest Dan Campbell fan. Like, I don't get uh I don't get touched by all his emotional speeches. Like the emotion stuff doesn't work on me. Like I don't I don't feel that when I played sports. It never got to me the motivational stuff. But I think a lot of people would love it. And I do think that the Lions actually are a really fun team to watch play football. Like, their offense is really good with Jameer Gibbs. I think he is you know, one of the best running backs still out there. Uh, He even compared himself to Christian McCaffrey today. Like, he's not the only uh, every down back. Jameer Gibbs can do that as well. Amon Ross, St. Brown. Like, they are a really good team. I think they're a lot of fun. I think that will be a fun matchup. I saw the Ravens 49ers. I don't want want to take the risk of having it be another uh, Christmas day where the Ravens just come out and annihilate the 49ers again. I saw that already, John. I want something different.
1: But don't you think the Ravens would boat race the Lions? Like I, I think that game's not even close. I think the, I think if I'm ranking the four teams, I think it's Baltimore, San Francisco, Kansas City, Detroit.
0: I like new. I just like something new. I want something new, John. I've, I, I saw this. The 49ers had their chance at home, mm. and they did do it. So you want know, give me the Lions? See what they can do. I, I, you're right though. I, you know, the point spread would definitely be higher if the Lions were playing the Ravens. That's five and true. a half. Five and a half. Six. And a half six. I think six, with the yeah. Niners would probably be three. Right two-and-a-half, three, maybe three-and-a-half, but uh, I, give me the Ravens for sure over the Chiefs. I think right now I'm leaning the would rather see the
1: Lions. We'll see uh, what happens in the AFC-NFC title game. But you tell me, 503 417 what game does the NFL want and what game do you want? Let's go out to the phones. Tyrone's in Portland. Tyrone, what you got?
3: Hey, John. Hey, uh, I think how you called it the first time, KC with uh, Taylor Swift, and then you got Detroit with M&M, so,
8: yeah. <laughs>
3: And that, I'll take that, this off there, John. Hey, what do you I I'm a big diner fan, but what do you think about Brock Purdy? Do you think he's the guy to lead us to the Super Bowl? I'll take this off there. I'm just kinda yeah. a little bit leery because I saw a little bit of the rain and his hands are not that big and, and I, I, I don't know. I'm just questioning that. I still question the guy, so I'll just take that off the air.
1: I'm a I'm a dance with the one you who brung ya or you brung. I can't what is that saying? Uh dance with the one you brung guy. So I, I kind of think, look, he got him to this point. He was in the MVP conversation until he wasn't. When, you know, he's, he is the distributor of a team that makes hey running the football and playing defense. Uh, he's the guy who gets the ball to George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Christian McCaffrey. Um, I think Purdy is good enough to win a Super Bowl. And I, and, I, and I think, look, we can go historically back to quarterbacks who are not as good as Brock Purdy who won Super Bowls. And you know Jeff Hostetler comes to mind, Trent Dilfer comes to mind um you know I, I think Brock Purdy's better than those guys, and I think he's more important to his team than those guys, but you know when he's not on, and there have been some moments and certainly the Baltimore game on Christmas Day was one of those moments um you you really start to look and go, gosh, this team has everything but that position, but I think they're much better positioned than they were um certainly you know, as they were uh you know, the last time they were in the Super Bowl and, you know, it was Jimmy Garoppolo and he was one or two plays away from winning a Super he, Bowl. He but... has
0: to be that point guard, John. Like, you talked about yeah. all the options. He has to spread it out to all his all his options that he has, especially if Debo's healthy. And I think for him, it's almost like the Josh Allen thing. Like, as long as he doesn't make mistakes, the 49ers should be okay. In that Christmas Day game, you know, he made some mistakes through some interceptions and then maybe that game is different if he doesn't do that. But I, I'm with you. Like, Brock Purdy... He is the ultimate game manager, and I just don't know. The worry that I have, if I'm a Forty Nine er fan, is that Kyle Shanahan doesn't trust him. He doesn't trust him in the big time moments to make a play, and he goes away from it, and he tries to force the run with Christian McCaffrey. He was awesome, but if you're going against the Ravens defense, you got to have a mix of run and pass. And I just yeah. get, I am afraid that Shanahan doesn't trust Purdy to make that big time throw.
1: Yeah, in a prettier Super Bowl, offensively, a prettier Super Bowl would be the Super Bowl that I talked about the NFL wanting it would be patrick mahomes it would be the chiefs it would be the niners that game was up and down you know it's in the low 30s high 20s both teams i think san francisco wins that game but i think that is a really enjoyable game to watch and you can cut away to taylor swift and you know jason kelsey in the in the luxury suite shirtless and you know you can have a fun time with it but a ravens niners super bowl i think is a little bloody and I think, you know, the Ravens match up nicely with the Niners. They have some guys that can play on defense. They're very disruptive. Um, and I think that game comes down to who runs the football better. Uh, let's go to Darlene, who is in Salem. Welcome to the show, Darlene.
6: Hey, thanks. My perfect Super Bowl would have been the Browns and the 49ers. Those are my two teams. And my son mm-hmm. even asked me if I'd mortgage the house to buy a ticket.
1: Yeah, you'd, you'd do it. You wouldn't, you know, you, it it it's... <laughs> Interesting to me. Like, would you really want to be there?
6: No, I like, I, we go to games. We've gone to a game every year for the last probably four or five years, except for the COVID year. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't because I want I wouldn't want to sit up high. I'd want to be yeah. in the 100 section and there's no way. Probably even mortg- mortgaging my house probably wouldn't even do it. Well, I just
1: tell you, yeah. I also think, Darlene, I, it's overblown. It, yeah. Go ahead.
6: Yeah. I don't like either AFC team. So hmm. I I was rooting for Buffalo to win last night. I do not like Patrick Mahomes. I'm with – yeah, I don't you. like the Kelseys. I hate Lamar Jackson. To me, they're show-offs and arrogant and think the game can't be won if they're not playing it and not realizing they have other teammates to help them win the game. That's my know. take on them.
1: All right, you're I definitely so. Want who are you root for then? Who are you going to root for in the oh, AFC title game?
6: I probably I'll watch the game just because I love football, but I probably will not be rooting for either team.
1: I would root for the Chiefs because I think the Niners will boat race the Chiefs. Between,
6: I love uh... that. I love that she's going to hate watch it. She's just going to hate watch the
1: game. But she's going to watch.
0: But we've all been in that situation. Like we hate the team, hate the player. I have to watch yeah. that. Like what else am I going to do?
1: I'm going to say something here, but I don't want to sound like a snob because I'm not a ticket buyer who's going to the Super Bowl. I've covered nine of them. I've been in the press box, I've been in the stadium. I'm here to tell you, I have been to a lot of stadiums and a lot of venues. I don't think a Super Bowl is worth it. I think it's overdone. I think there's a lot of hype. I think the crowd is often detached from the game because it's a it's a corporate crowd. There've been some there've been some exceptions. I went to one Super Bowl where the Eagles fans did show up. But I've been there nine times, and I've left going, gosh, if I were a fan, this would be disappointing because it's it's a lot of hype. It's a lot of production. It's a lot of blow-up. It's a big halftime show. But I think you get more out of being in, like, your team's home stadium for Monday Night Football. I think that is a better use of your dollars. So I would tell Darlene, go to a game in Cleveland uh, when next time they're on Monday Night Football and watch them, or go to a game, wherever your favorite team is, go and watch them. And enjoy that atmosphere and the culture of game day. And you know, my Monday night brings a little uh, brings a little extra lights, and you know, it brings a little extra pizzazz to the game. But I I don't think a Super Bowl is where you know because you look at the price. Like I you know I, I can remember going to Super Bowls and covering them, and you you see like there'd always be a story about some fan who sold their tractor to get a ticket to the game or something like that. She's talking about mortgaging the house. I don't think that that's the place to do it. I think you go and you see your team in their home stadium on Monday night football. You get the true experience. And
0: at least this year, maybe just go to Vegas and go to some, you know, yeah. go to the sports book and do that instead of actually going to the actual game. That might be even more yeah. fun than doing the Super Bowl because you're right. Like, yeah. um, there's been, my dad was telling me, there's been experiences where he's had friends that gone and they say it's one of the most boring games to go to. Yes. Longer breaks, longer commercials, all that kind of stuff.
1: Murmur of the crowd. I can just remember, like, looking around the Super Bowl crowd thinking, Gosh, this is a bunch of affluent people who work for companies that gave them tickets. This isn't like the die-hard fans, and and for that, I would say, like, look, go to the college football playoff national championship game before you go to a Super Bowl. Go to a Rose Bowl and see a big Rose, big-time Rose Bowl matchup, especially if it's like a playoff game in the coming, uh, you know, expanded playoff scenario. I think there's be- just better opportunities, better value for your money than spending the five or $7,000 to get a lower-level ticket to the Super Bowl and then going and going, these people who are sitting around me don't even care about the game. They're just here to be seen. Leave it here. Well, the NFL will not have any trouble. The 49ers will not have any trouble uh, selling tickets to the uh, NFC title game, even though ticket prices are not probably what people anticipated with the Detroit Lions being in the game. But it's still an NFC title game, and certainly the Ravens, They've got Patrick Mahomes to sell, and it's a big event and a big venue, but uh let me ask you, Stephen, what are the Portland Trailblazers selling as they try to market this team for the rest of the season, and maybe when the Lakers are in town, you can sell the Lakers, or if the Spurs are in town, you can sell a game against the Spurs, but what's a team with a record of twelve and thirty? Selling at this point of the season,
0: yeah, I think uh, ultimately it's selling the other team, like you said, hoping that the other team can bring in some fans. But if you're just talking about the actual Trailblazers, there's really not much right now. All you can do is sell is hope. It's all about hope, and that's what it's been for the Blazers for the past you know 20 plus years. Is oh well, it's not going to be this year. It's going to be the next year. It's going to be the next year. It's going to be the next year, and it you know it's going to be about you know Scoot Henderson and Amphrey Simons and Shaden Sharp, all these young players that they have. They're just going to try to sell the hope and say that, you know what, this wasn't the year, there was injuries, and just watch these young players develop as we try to bloom into a good team next season, and then they won't be good again and they'll have to sell the, another young player that they have about the hope that they have. So I don't, they really don't have much, John. Like, it's a very uninspiring team right now. Um, even even the young players are very uninspiring, so it's but tough. I,
1: I, but, I you know, I've always felt like there are – franchises that have that do a really good job of selling a fan experience and they go hey come to our building you know the home team hopefully will win but if they don't win you're going to have a great experience you're going to leave thinking this was a terrific night well worth the price of admission and i think you ha- you struggle a little bit when you know the the venue the motor center venue is a little stale needs some updates you know it's not bad but it needs updates and the product is not good. It's not a successful product, and and in general, there's just this kind of ominous feeling about ownership. And this is where I wish, like Adam Silver, the uh, NBA commissioner, would get uh, would be a little more heavy handed when it per- as it pertains to the Blazers ownership situation. Because we all know that you know if you are a uh, Blazer fan, you're probably sitting around like I am, waiting for the franchise to get sold. End up in the hands of somebody who knows what the heck to do with it. And I think that kind of affects the way that you approach going to games or being parts of games. And here's Adam Silver, you know, in December when he was asked, uh, you know, about the timeline for the Blazers' sale.
5: I I have no better sense of a precise timing there. I think Paul's
4: directives are clear. His estate, you know, led by Jody. Alan is the trustee, are currently in control of the team. I think in fairness to Jody and the basketball people around her, they very much have a vision for building this team and whether they were controlling it for five more years or ten more years, I think the team is on the right path to developing. And so, you know, some, some necessary rebuilding, we've seen that in a lot of
5: organizations around the league, but I'm still very optimistic about the future of the Trailblazers.
1: That's such a crock. He can't possibly feel that way. I, I just, I don't think he could possibly feel that way. Do you believe for, does anybody believe for a second that the Blazers have a plan and a vision? No. Does anybody believe for a second that Paul Allen's wishes are clear? No. We don't. Like, all I know about Paul Allen's trust and his wishes were that it, it, his, his assets were supposed to be sold to help fund his passion projects. You know, Jodie Allen was never interested in the Blazers. It wasn't her thing. She used to laugh and call it his, you know, his hobby. And now she, unfortunately, has the keys to the empire. I I think Adam Silver is taking the high road and not really saying the quiet part out loud. Do you believe for a second they've got a plan, Stephen? Do they they feel like they have a plan? Uh, No,
0: not really. I don't. I also think it doesn't help for the Blazers that... It seems as if Jody Allen likes football more. Like, you know, I, I think I think she cares more about the football team, where Paul, I thought, cared more about the Blazers. And so I think that is a little disconnect there with with Jody Allen. Not saying it's a good thing for the Seahawks if Jody Allen or Burt Cole are involved, but what I'm saying is I think they're going to invest more in that team because they actually care more about the football product. They like that product. Better than the Blazers and their basketball run, where Paul Allen he was willing to invest a lot into the Trailblazers because that's what he really cared about. He wanted to bring an NBA title to Portland. That was his thing. Where I think that now there is no plan of you know trying to invest in this Blazer team. I just I do wonder though, John, like if the Blazers were good, like let's just say the Trailblazers were good somehow, would we still feel this way about the ownership group? Because like I I get it, the owners. I wish there was a better ownership group. I wish wait there was wait, new wait, wait. owners. What do you
1: mean if they were good?
0: If they were that, like, if they were in like, you content- don't
1: correlate the fact that they've got lousy ownership with
0: them being bad. I think like, it, has, it has to do with it a little bit, but I also think in the NBA it's all about talent. Like, if they had, if they had Giannis and Dame on their team, they're going to be really good. I, the, yeah, like,
1: but you don't get Giannis and Dame when you've got an owner who's checked out. But if like, Phil
0: Knight's the owner, it's not as if
1: players are going to say, "Oh, I need to go play for Phil Knight now." I think if Phil Knight was the owner of the team, yeah, Damian Lillard would still be on the team. I think Phil would have come in and he would have went, "Hey, this is our plan." This is what we're gonna do, Damn, We're gonna build around you. Enough of this losing nonsense. He's visionary. Like you, I think you have to have an owner. I think it's directly correlated. Like the product, the product on the court, much like a restaurant, you know, the food that the restaurant is serving. You don't, you can't go to the owner of you know your local uh, restaurant and say, you know, you're the reason the food's bad. No, the chef is the reason the food's bad, and the person who orders the food, it's them. But ultimately, that's coming top down. Like if you know, if the owner's in, worth a damn, he gets a chef in there who can cook, and he tells the general manager, "Hey, we're going to order better food. We want the best food in in the in the town." And and so I think you you have to correlate bad ownership or absentee ownership with bad product on the court.
0: You do, but I I, I don't think it's the most important thing. I really don't. I really think that you could have the best talent in the NBA and the worst owner in the NBA. And you're going to win games, and you have a chance to win a championship, and that bad owner could win it, win a whole title. Like I, I, That's the way I think it works in the NBA. Other sports may be a little different, but that's what I think for the Blazers is if they had better talent, we wouldn't be talking as much about how bad Jody Allen and Burt Cole is. Now, they are bad. I'm not saying they're not. Don't confuse that. But I just think that we overblow it because we don't want to blame anybody else. It's so much easier to blame coaches and the ownership rather than the actual product on the court mm-hmm. or the field.
1: I, I look higher, and I go, I look at the owner, and I go, gosh, if that owner were worth a damn. They really had a plan. They would have had a plan for Damian Lillard that was more than, let's just wait it out and trade him for all that we can get. Uh, I don't think Lillard saw a plan from the Blazers for years. Would have not I- enabled Neil Olshay to go on and on and on and the franchise to be run into the ground. Certainly Terry Stotts was held up as the uh, scapegoat. Um, and I don't think the roster would be as bad. I think I think that you know, it's definitely symptomatic. I look at the roster and the product as a symptom of the owner. I don't know. Let's look at the four owners uh, in these NFL franchises and let's see about you know the top NBA teams. Do we have an example of a terrible owner who's had big success? you know? I, 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 maybe there's accidents, but I, I don't think so. Uh, we'll take a deeper look at this later. I appreciate everybody who's part of the show. Uh, Appreciate everybody who listens. We're back tomorrow with another great show. Make sure you get a podcast of this show wherever you get a podcast. uh, For Steven and Judah and uh, the team here at 750 The Game, Uh, we're we're proud for you to be here and uh, look forward to tomorrow's show.